Tracy Porter taking it all the way. Touchdown, New Orleans. Hey now, hey now, hey now, welcome to the Sportscasters, my name is Steve Bennett, this is season 11, episode number 3, and it's our second episode kind of back to back, so what happened was, I recorded four interviews in two days or so, and uh, last week I posted the first episode of the four interviews, and I had on Sean McDonough from ESPN, of course, the legendary announcer, which was a really fun interview. And then Brian Curtis from The Ringer, which is an interview I thought I botched. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Because I did get an email from someone who didn't think it sucked as bad as I did. Today on the podcast, Richard Deitch from The Athletic. Uh, we'll go to him right off the top and then... After the book club, Damon Hack will join us for the one-hour podcast we did on Tiger Woods that kind of piggybacks off of the HBO documentary, which is called Tiger, which of course was based on the book by Armin Katayan and Jeff Benedict. Uh, so that's what's on tap today. We also have a book club update. We have a new book club book of the week, uh, which will lead to a pretty big debut on the podcast uh, first time we've had this guy. He's about 200,000 followers on Twitter. Um, pretty big guest, I think. I'll mention who that is in the book club update. And then at the end of the show, we'll do plugs and one last thing. Now, for a special treat in the show today, uh, since I talked about how much I missed him on the show last last week, he said, I want to be on this week. So uh, joining us through the rest of the podcast on those three segments will be my brother, Anthony. What's up, buddy? How you doing? What's up, Steve-O? Good to be back. I'm trying to think of the last time I was on. And the last time I can remember being on was maybe like when I lived in New York and it was around Masters time. Does that sound right? Like 20, yep. 20, what, 20? I remember that. April-ish? I remember that time. For I think sure. Damon might have been on as well, right? Like that was... I think me and Damon just somehow just have good cam and are always on this together. But I feel like that was the last time I was on, maybe April of 17. Yeah, I remember that time when you were on. So that sounds about right. Which, yeah. you know, it's crazy because these seasons start to run together and the episodes start to run together. You know, it doesn't feel that long ago that Brian Curtis was on, but that was he was actually last on November of 2018. You know, so that's like three, almost three years. Well, you know, it's two years plus going into the third year, but wild. So quickly, why don't we talk? How much can we talk about what you do in your life? Why don't you tell people what you do? What do you do? Where are you? <laughs> sure. So I am in uh, Alpine, New Jersey, which is about, you know, 25 minutes from, you know, like downtown Manhattan, just right across the George Washington on the other side of the Hudson. Um, so sort of back in, in the New York City area, tri-state area. Um, and got a pretty awesome, unique gig here where, um, 
sort of a, a billet dad. And for those, I don't know, is billet? Do people know what a billet is? I don't think so. No. In that word. Uh-uh. Okay, so like, like for example, like when I played in the USHL, I would stay with a billet family, right? Like they right. would host me when I was playing there, um, and sort of that's come full circle, and now I am the billet dad. So, um, live in a house with fourteen teenagers. Um, and we have, uh, have access to a rink that's right next door and sort of train the guys at the rink, live in the house together. And, um, you know, which is, is an interesting thing to do, especially, you know, with COVID and all the restrictions now, it's actually sort of, sort of nice to have our own little bubble and we treat it as such. So, um, you know, it's, it's really cool to, to be on the ice and, and, uh, have access to the rink and a really good group of kids that are, you know, really elite hockey players, young guys, you know, age 15 to 18. And, um, you know, like I said, it's just a really unique sort of setup. And, you know, I got, you know, approached maybe right around Labor Day weekend of 2020. Um, you know, and I, I wasn't looking for anything, right? Like I was, I was back home in Buffalo and, you know, committed to hockey, running mountain camps, coaching, you know, St. Francis High School, my alma mater. And, uh, you know, through the connections in hockey, you know, got attacked out of nowhere and um, just felt it's just an amazing opportunity to sort of not only, you know, help kids, you know, get to the next level and, and, and be on the ice with, you know, some elite guys, but just my own sort of development as a skill coach, hockey coach person, um, you know, it's definitely a move, you know, up and to the right. So, um, yeah, so I guess my day to day is, you know, wake up, go to the rink, which is, you know, a hundred yards from where I sleep essentially and learn how to drive a Zamboni and, uh, you know, I'm on the ice, on the ice two, three, four hours a day. So it's, it's an amazing setup and very thankful that, you know, this is what I get to do every day. This is how I described it in the email that we sent out to the, uh, St. Francis parents I wrote, and I think you liked this at the time. I've received the life-changing opportunity to coach and mentor players in a private billet program in Alpine, New Jersey. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't think there's many situations like this really anywhere. You know, it's uh, it's a unique spot. Um, that program that's been around about five, six years, and, you know, been moving on to the USHL, Division One hockey. You know, there's a few kids here already that have committed to play college you know, I, I feel like, you know, we have some kids, you know, that plan for someday. Um, so it's really cool to, to have a partner development and us out there on the ice. It's, it's been good, too, to be able to sort of test out, you know, some of my thoughts on hockey and, and, and you know, and seeing them sort of, you know, understand and apply it is, is a very cool sort of thing from my perspective. You know, when I was when I was a player, I was, you know, I was always, I guess, I, you know, a skill guy, if that's how you would say it. So it's cool to sort of, you know, have that experience and then have kids who, you know, have insane ability, right. And be able to sort of, you know, pass along what I, what I see in the game and, you know, they're able to do it at a, at a pretty high level. And you also got to spend some time around the Chicago steel USHL team. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was cool. That, that was a couple of weeks uh, in December. I got to go and, 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 and sort of shadow that staff. And, um, you know, and, and they're just an unbelievable organization that has, you know, sort of re- reimagined, you know, what you can do in that league. I think when I was playing that league, 
you know, that like it, it was wasn't as much like player development to a certain I mean, obviously it was, but not to like this point where like you're almost you're not sacrificing win or loss, but like that's just a byproduct of the development. Whereas I think, you know, a decade ago when I was playing the USHL, it was more that was the focus. And and, and again, like not saying like winning doesn't matter because if you're doing the right thing by the players and developing with the winning, you know, comes with that. Um, but it was just cool. Like that was my first time, you know, I've been coaching for, I don't know, three, four years now, but that was sort of the first time I got to, you know, be around a staff at a high level and I wasn't the player. Right. So I got to see, you right. know, how, you know, the staff prepares for practice and it was just so cool to see, you know, how much detail goes into just like a Tuesday practice, right. Like, you know, spend 35 minutes deciding, you know, what they're going to work on, you know, looking at video of the last time they did this drill. It's just, it's just so cool to see like really what goes into it. Cause like when you're a player, you just show up, you warm up here's the practice and you do it. Right. But you don't realize kind of what, what kind of preparation and thought goes into, you know, and just, you know, setting up like a Tuesday practice, right. It seems insignificant, you know, as a player, but, um, it was really cool to kind of, you know, get to be involved in that and, you know, the, their success kind of speaks to themselves. And, you know, I think they had eight draft picks last year. Like, it's just crazy, right. Like the, the players that they've moved on in the development. So, Again, another, um, you know, unreal experience that wouldn't have happened if, you know, I didn't get that, you know, that text in September. Yeah, and I think we can say without selling out any confidences that you've also got to share the rink with former NHL royalty and, um, you know, just, an, uh, you know, another opportunity that you wouldn't have got to be able to share the ice with people who've played the game at the highest level and kind of almost see where you measure up in a way um, just in terms of like raw skill, if that's a fair way to put it. That's fair. All right. Not bad. What else did you want to talk about? I know you want to talk about golf. Oh, I got a couple questions for you. So, yeah. Reader's Digest version of what the hell happened with the stock market. Because you got a finance degree. Oh, man. Well, you you don't have a finance Uh, degree. You have a political political science degree. But then after Yale, you got what? Your series. What is it called? Yeah, 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 yeah. The series I've been in '66, so I right. was like a, a registered whatever you know the, the term is. Yeah, I was a political scientist. All right, let's get your college. take on that. <laughs> oh man, my take on and I mean it it's is, over now, right? You know, I mean it all came crashing down. Yeah, I mean yeah. I, I'd actually I looked I looked this morning like GameStop was like eighty, which is still an insane you know level, right? Because it's probably worth five, you know, for that to be trading at. Right. Yeah, like you know, it's you know it was, it was hovering around you know three to seven for months, and it's still at eighty. You know, you're still you know, those people are who are still holding are still, you know, much in the green, but, you know, they might feel like they're in the red because it was at 400 last week. But, yeah, I guess my take on it is, um, you know, it's just interesting to see, you know, when the masses sort of get involved. Um, and I don't think, like, this was all, like, kids in their basement. Like, I'm, I, that actually, like, that analogy infuriates me because you're sort of, you're just, you're saying like, like none of these people could be, you know, guys who maybe used to work in the industry who are now, you a know, lot of people home, are trading you know. from their basement. It's COVID, right? I mean, so that's not, yeah. It, it like, I don't, I don't, I'm so like CNBC is, is just a disaster and disgrace, you know, like Reddit rebellion, all these headlines are just, they're just like Looney Tunes because like who do who they don't know. Like anyone could have a Reddit screen name, right? Like it could be anyone. It could be someone on the inside at these hedge funds who, are on the on the right side right like they don't know um so yeah i mean i guess my take on it is you know like 
momentum, you know, in the stock market is, is, is pretty much everything in terms of, you know, being on the right side of it or the wrong side of it, you know, really legal. pile up against you. And right. It's legal to use. a thousand. Yeah. There's yep. nothing, nothing happened that was illegal. And maybe the only thing that was illegal is what Robin Hood did. And right. Sort of changed the rules as the game was being played. And, you know, I'm sure more and more will come out against that. But, you know, I think the man in the suit, you know, took a beating, but you know, I think the man in the suit probably also shorted it when it was at 400 and now it's at 80. Right. So I think, you know, the person who maybe got in at 300 is feeling pain, but like, you know, so people, you know and like, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, tell me what I got, what I get wrong here. Basically people mm-hmm. on Reddit discovered that big hedge funds were selling short on GameStop and a few other companies. So they, yep. they created momentum to drive the price up. The hedge funds then who were selling short on that face massive losses. And those people were sitting at massive gains and the conspiracy theory, if that's fair to call it that, maybe it's not, maybe it's more than a conspiracy theory. Let's say the thoughts of mm-hmm. someone like Dave Portnoy is that then the people behind the hedge funds who were losing forced Robin hood, an app that they are investors in uh, to, to, crater the stock so that they would cover their losses. Is that essentially what happened? Yeah, I think pretty much that that's a fair assumption. You know, I think like they still got pain. Like there was still a ton of pain, right? Cause like even, you know, like hedge funds were shorting the stock at six, right? So even at 200, you know, you're losing your shirt. Um, but I think even more so, the more I think about it is like, you know, if, if someone put a short on at 400, knowing that Robin Hood was going to make that decision. Like those are the guys that made the most money, right? Forget the Reddit people, forget the guys that lost their shirt. There's still the group of people who fought, like watch this. And then at 400 short it, and maybe they knew what was going to happen at Reddit at, uh, sorry, Robin Hood. And then they're the ones who really probably made the most money here. It's the guys that shorted at 400 previous to Red, uh, Robin Hood, um, stopping buys. But, you know, I, you know, I, I think a lot of it is is stupid from the hedge funds. I think a lot of these guys, you know, they're smarter than this, and they should have realized that, you know, it's not like a stock. The stock was at 150, where per share is expensive to the you know, normal, you know, individual. Like someone's not going to want to buy a stock at 150 per share, right? Or, but like GameStop was at three dollars, so like you know, three hundred dollars gets you a hundred shares, and that's 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 significant for short and it's not significant for someone that 300 bucks like what's that that's you know that's a parlay right that's 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 you know people are willing to lose 500 dollars to see you know something like that happen so i think they're greedy and they should have covered their shorts when it was at three but they wanted to go to zero and i think you know they deserve to sort of get pain because they they should have they should have covered their shorts so let me ask um, let me ask you this let's, so, uh, let's say i bought enough shares of this at three dollars to make mm-hmm. ten million when it was at its peak, I'm at ten million, and yep. I and I sell off then. What will I end up with after the capital gains tax and all that? Yeah, so it, it'd be a short term gain because you didn't hold the stock for a year, right. unless you want to say you did. But it, so if you if you if the short term um, gain is taxed at your income at your ordinary tax bracket, so let's okay. say you know forty percent tax, you know that's what it is. But if you were to hold it for a full year. Let's say you bought GameStop, you know, 13 months ago, and then sold it. Then it's 20% um, cap game tax, and maybe 15% based on your income level. Okay. 
So you could still make yeah. a significant amount of money. There's still some people who've made oh, hell yeah. a significant amount of money by buying a shit ton and then selling off at 300. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and but the, I think the person who made the most money is the person who watched this all happen, saw it get to 400. And if they knew about the Robin Hood stuff and they didn't, or just assumed the man in the suit would win, shorted it there. Like those are the guys that that made the most money. Were the guys who watched it ride up and then shorted it around the top. Um, those are the winners, I think. Interesting. Interesting. What about? Mm-hmm. Did you see the Tiger documentary that Damon and I are going to break down? Or did you read that? I book? saw the first episode. I I I, I didn't. I'm not going to say I read it. I okay. listened to the audio book. All right. Um, I'm not going to, you know, oh, yeah, take I sent Valor that to you, for right? reading. I sent that to you. Yeah, and yeah. it was fascinating. Yeah. It was fascinating. And I, I would assume, you know, I watched the first episode and it was just sort of the same vibes as the, as the book. Um, I didn't see the second episode yet, but, you know, You're not I, I think I've said this to you before, but um, my my biggest takeaway is, is just the way, like, Tiger just, like, eliminates people from his life. Oh my like, god! They, there's this, there's this story about the his first ever swing coach, yep. right? From like age whatever to like Butch Harmon at 14 or something. Like never charged them for anything, um, and then just like at age 14, like out of nowhere, someone else tells him Tiger has got Butch Harmon, and then like literally never talk to Tiger again. Like that just blows my mind. Yeah, but Damon and I talk about that too, and. Howard Stern is like that. And that's not the only well. person, right? Like, that's yeah. not the only person. Oh, no, there's many, right? many, many. Yeah. Yeah. A, mm-hmm. You know, a few dozen, three, four, five dozen people who were great friends with Tiger Woods and are now ghosted, if that's the word we use now to describe that. But Yeah, they're just oh, gassed, yeah, eliminated. You know, the book was... And it's just crazy as a, at a human level that, like, he just doesn't care about that, right? Which is just wild to me, like... Yeah, and I was saying like, you know, like Howard's not even like an that. ounce of like, is he? Yeah, Howard will have like Howard had this guy called Scott the Engineer worked for him for thirty years, and uh, boom, he's gone, gone. Didn't say goodbye to him. Didn't thank him. Nothing. He got in an argument at a Christmas party. Got fired. Ghosted. Dead. Just like that. Yeah, thirty years, wild. like it meant nothing. And like this guy Scott, his wife died of cancer. And Howard didn't even, this is when he was still working there. Howard didn't even, like, wish him condolences when he came back to work or anything. Is that Howard just, like, not realizing and, and, and like, just being in his, like, world yeah. that he's in? Or, he has, like, he's just a personality, like, fault, like, doesn't give a fuck? Well, I think part of what the, the ghosting and things like, like what Damon says about Tiger and I think I agree with them, is it's like that mentality is like what allows you to be so incredibly cutthroat on the the course, I guess. And I think it's the same for Howard on the radio, especially, you know, in the 90s when he was just conquering markets. You know, he would go into Chicago, right, and find out who the Howard Stern of Chicago was. It was this guy named Mankow, right? And he would defeat him. And in the process of defeating him was so ruthless. You know what I mean? Like he would, I remember he got on the radio after Mankow's father had died of cancer and like called him, called him up in like a seance and was like fucking his dad's skull. It's ugly. 
You know, and like Howard now, like to, to so he doesn't have to be responsible for the things he did in the nineties and two thousands. He'll say something. Does he have regrets about that? Does he probably? No? But you know what he'll say about it is he'll be like, "Oh, I was crazy then. You know, I was just so driven. Right. I was just so right. focused on being number one. You know, like he kind of right. almost justifies it that way. And I think Tiger would say the same thing. Like I was so focused on being number one in the world, I couldn't take time to, you know, think Butch Harmon or the guy before him or whoever. You or know. yeah, so at at fourteen, you couldn't say thank you to the guy who had been teaching right. you for eight years. I, I couldn't even, you know, like, I, I couldn't even say dad, goodbye to my first dad, love, probably. my high school girlfriend. You know what I mean? I couldn't even. Right. I just had to right. pack but all think, of her shit up at the hotel. I think that would have been his parents' point, right? Like that might have been his parents at that point, and tires. And that's like, what he learned, out. right? And that's what he learned. He that, can't text. Yeah, he can't text your coach, right? I don't know, but yeah, it's it's insane, and that like you said, that's not the only person. You just sort of just all right, you're gone. The the interesting thing about the book and the documentary, you know, I've never been a Tiger Woods fan, really. Probably, mm-hmm. probably the opposite of a Tiger Woods fan. You know, I've spent many of tournaments rooting for just anyone other than him to win it. But I think two things have softened me slightly. One is, you know, I just appreciate that he lost everything and then rose back up. You know what I mean? And even with a little bit of renewed humility... You cut out. You there? Yeah, shit. Were you, Is that bad? It couldn't have been. No, it's not live. I'll just, I'll just fix okay. it. Yeah. Couldn't have been very All right, long. You're saying you're not, yeah. you're not a Tiger Woods okay, fan. Gotcha. I've never been a big Tiger Woods fan. And as a matter of fact, I've probably been the opposite of a Tiger Woods fan, right? For the most part. But. I think I mentioned to Damon that two things have sort of softened me slightly on him. And one is that I respect the fact that he fell and then rose again, you know, and even with a little bit of renewed humility. And then I think the other thing is I just relate to him as a father now. You know, when you see that, right. mo- when you see that moment after winning the Masters with his son and you see the genuine nature of that. And, you know, I'm a young father, like Tiger's a little bit, been a father a little bit longer than me, you know, maybe got half a decade on me or whatever. But I think those two things have, 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 um, softened me a little. And also just, I think what turned me off to him was just his dominance, right? Like it just was kind of, for me, like this guy doesn't even have, he doesn't even have a rival. You know what I mean? It's just, it's not even. You know, it's not interesting to me to watch the U.S. I'm a four tournament a year golf guy, right? For the most part, give or take. Maybe I go yep. se- maybe I go seven deep. You and know, you're a USA guy, and he sucks in the Ryder Cup. And he sucks in the Ryder Cup. And mm-hmm. you know, which I always felt like was just like again the selfish nature of him. You know, like oh, same <laughs> thing. Yeah, didn't care. Yeah, who cares? Yeah. Um, but and he has had a renewed interest in that too. Maybe that's another thing. You know, and is more in his coaching. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, right. he likes the young guys like Justin Thomas and them. Yep. Yeah, I think he likes being able to be one of the guys and things like that and that now. But um, the other thing was just like, okay, it's U.S. Open. This will be cool. And then it's like Saturday, and it's like, okay, the leader's up by twelve. All right. Well, I guess I'm out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't know. But I have yeah. softened to right. him a little bit, despite the fact that I was disgusted by so many things in the book, you know, and in the documentary. But so it's interesting, you know, it's like finally I have all this evidence of everything I assumed back then or wanted to know back then. And I'm like, all right, but I kind of feel 
I've, I've gained a little bit of respect for him in the sense that, you know, hey, he got down to the bottom with me and he found a way back up. And then also, he's obviously a very caring and loving father, so. Yeah, Charlie Woods is going to be a savage. And one of my one of my buddies that I live with in New York, he um he has uh his dad lives down in Jupiter now and he has two younger brothers and they're actually uh really good friends with Charlie and like play a lot of golf with them and go to the house a lot and um you know, they have had nothing but good things to say about like Tiger around Charlie and Charlie's a good kid and but man his golf swing's nasty and it's going to be interesting to see like you know, how much he wants to kind of do it. I mean, it looks like he's got some jam in him and wants to keep playing, but again, he's, what is he, 12 years old? But um, I love that he's got a little Sweden in him too from Elon, and he's going to be a problem. <laughs> he looks a lot like Tiger. I saw the videos where they put him he side, does. side to yeah, side. He does. The swings. It's insane. All his mannerisms. Yeah, like fist pumps, club twirls, walks. It's unreal. But I did, they play a ton of golf together, right? Like, I know, like, in Jupiter, like, he's really close to Justin Thomas. Like, they just play a ton of golf together. So, um, all right, here's yeah, a, like you said, here's from a father perspective, it's been cool. Here's another thing. Explain to me what happened with Patrick Reed, and also why was he in trouble but not Rory, because it seems like they did the same thing, basically. So clear up that controversy yeah. for me. Because I asked you about it, and you sent me a private Instagram feed. So that didn't get oh, me. Oh, I did. Yeah, it didn't get me um, anywhere. So tell me what what the hell went on there. Well, I think like, Patrick Reed has a history. So I guess let's forget about Roy. For well, a he's a heel. He's a heel, right? I mean, essentially. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. He and, and he's yeah, the bad like guy wife, in a wrestling match. His wife's his wife's an internet troll that has a burner and, and right. That, they're heels. That was kind of yeah. So I don't know. I mean, like from a golfer perspective, like so they were playing a Tory Pines. You know, it's it's what is it January in, in in San Diego, and it's a little damp, and so they played the ball um, up, which means like if you hit the fairway, you know you can pick up your ball, clean it, put it back down, right? And mud balls and all that. But if you if you hit it in the rough, you play it as it lies, right? So you know, hitting it in the rough when you're playing it up is you know obviously it's it's thick, it's muddy, you know it might plug, blah blah blah. So you know he hit it left or whatever, never saw it bounce. You know, asked the volunteer to bounce. She didn't see a bounce. And the only thing I really have a problem with is that, like, he just picked the ball up, right? Which is that seemed weird to sort me. Of so I know you do that. Thing. You do that on the green, right? But I thought that was kind of it. Well, you do that when a rules official's there, right? Because then this is what happens. So, like, if if he did it right, right, he's he's like, oh, I think it's plugged. I want a rules official. He waits till the rule official's there, right? He puts the tee down. The rule official, you know, either says it's plugged right away or says pick it up now and we'll check underneath it, right? But, like, Patrick Reed just, like, picked it up. <laughs> and, like, and, like, even if you watch the video, like, the rules official, like, kind of comes over. He's like, where's the ball? And, <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's right here. He's like, oh. So I think, like, that was the biggest problem is that he picked it up, us sort of, like, deleting any evidence. Um and yeah, I mean, he's had a history of, you know, messing around with the rules, especially in bunkers and, and, and he does it in, in, in spots where he's in bad shape, right? Like he, it's never like, he never makes this mistake, you know, in a good spot, right? Like, you okay. know, like he yep. hit it in a bad spot. So, or he's in the bunker where he needs to sort of, you know, get a better lie if he's like short-sided and needs to get some spin on the ball, blah, blah, blah. So I, I think, 
you know, I, I do think part of him is, is stretching the rules and, and sort of taking advantage of it, especially with no fans there. He's got every excuse to be like, no one saw it. You know, his playing partners probably don't really give a fuck. We're really watching, you know, they're dealing with their own shit. So like, um, and then Rory, like, I don't think Rory picked it up, um, until he already maybe asked the official, and don't quote me here, but I, I don't think Rory did it the same way that Reed did, but it was the same shot, like his bounce, right? They both bounce, so they're, it's impossible to be embedded. Well, but I, I don't think, think maybe Rory, Rory like, didn't pick it up at first or something. Yeah, like he definitely. There like, was one slight difference bounce. about it. I forget what. I think it was that because it was insane that Reed did pick it up. But, um,. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think he knows what he's doing. I think he took advantage of it. I think he took advantage of the situation that there's no fans there. He has the excuse that the volunteer didn't see it. Like I said, I doubt his playing partners really give a fuck. And, you know, he got away with it and and got up and down. I think he made a par there. And, you know, I mean, he won by five, whatever. But, um, yeah, like you said, I think... You know, is the he? You know, I think that's easy to heal, and I think then that that like kind of like creates fire in him, and I think he loves being hated. I mean, if you look at his history and his past, like he's just a hated guy, hated on that Augusta State, he won national championships, but he's a hated teammate. Um, you know, just just he keeps a really small circle. His wife's internet troll. Um, yeah, I mean, it is what it is, right? He won by five, so but. It was sketchy, and, and the fact that a pro would just pick up a ball—that's crazy to me, right? Like that's everything else, whatever. But like, he just picked it up. I couldn't believe it, and like you can even see like his caddy, which is his brother-in-law, was just like, I don't know. He's it's like walking, it walking around with it in his hand. I was like, wow, that's it's wild. like, dude, what are you doing? I've yeah, never seen like, that before. Yeah, I've never <laughs> like, seen that before. Yeah, it was, it was, but whatever, you know. I, I'm sure Augusta's. Not too happy. He's got a green jacket. I'll tell you that for free. Right, but he he won that fair and square. Right, there was no gray area in that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, there wasn't like I'm, a, sure I'm just not... saying like there wasn't like a moment I'm missing where he did something there. Or At Augusta, no, yeah, no, no, okay. no, 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 no. But I don't think he's the best represent you know representative of of their values, if you will. <laughs> right. Well, he won't be the first guy. Correct. Um, <laughs> you know, it, some people are just born heels. And, and he is one of them. And he's one of them. And I think when you are a born heel, you embrace it. You know, it's your way of life. Yeah. And, you're, you know, you're always looking for a chance to heal. You know, like heels heal. And um, and the more you boo the heel, the happier he is, right? Like he loves to be booed and heckled. Like yeah. He thrives on that. You know. This- Did you see the, the, the Twitter troll, like the, the tweets? Like, so, like, he has his own account, and, like, there was this tweet that, like, said, like, Rory McIlroy did the same thing, like, all caps, like, this insane tweet. And then there's a Twitter handle that's, like, at facts that literally tweeted the exact same thing. Can you believe that this keeps happening over and over? <laughs> These famous people keep getting busted. These people are insane, dude. Just Kevin Durant. Hang out your pool. Just hang out your pool. Yeah. You know, like... Well, he, he wants, to, won, he wants know, to heal. $2 million. He's a heel. He's won $2 million for four days of golf. That's how like, he breathes. You're number, you're number four in the world. Like, what are you doing on Twitter? Oh, man, I don't get it. Be, I'd be gone. Being a heel. Yeah, you're right. That's how he breathes. It's like his gills or whatever. You know, he needs to heal. 
And like, I can't believe, I, how, like, so Kevin Durant busted on a burner. This guy, the hockey player, the Rangers defenseman, right, got yeah. clearly busted this week because he started DMing from the burner account and talking about my agent and showing, showing uh, pr- private. Like, that's what blows my mind. It's like when you're on that burner, like, someone needs to coach these guys on how to burn. See, what the thing is they want to be caught because they're heels. Oh, I don't get it, man. I don't understand it. Well, you're a baby face. And like Tony D'Angelo, like, dude, you just signed a two-year, $10 million contract. Like, what are you doing? Right. Well, I guess what you he's know, doing is like, sitting around making the money to do nothing is what he's doing, right? Because he cleared waivers. There's no way out of that deal. Cleared waivers. Yeah. You know? And they're not going to play him, and who wants to trade for him? So what? Yeah, what especially a, with the cap going down. That's a what, big, you know. What are their options? Maybe a buyout, but it's not the buyout period. So he's definitely getting this year's. Yeah, he's just he's just gonna sit in Long Island, or where is he from? Philly. He's gonna sit in Philly. Yep, and collect but, five million or whatever this year to do it. What else has happened in the world? Classic heel move. Speaking of heel moves, so last week I give this beautiful, beautiful soliloquy about missing Anthony, and you know I kind of soft sold it. Didn't really say anything to him. Just put the tweets out, and this is what I this is the this is the thanks I get. This is the beautiful heartfelt message I get back in return. Great podcast, dude. <laughs> what's the next? Tw- no, no, no. What, what's the next one? I want to. I want to. I want to come oh, on. There you go. You're on. How many minutes after the first text was that? Zero. Exactly. Yeah, but you want to yeah. come on? What does that have to do with anything? Well, you said you missed me, so I want to come on to the sportscasters. Oh, is that okay? I, I feel like this is a good way of. Of you know, I mean, I can't be in Boston today. When do you think you'll be back? Are you coming for the uh, pillows party? Mom was out asking me about that. Do you think Anthony yeah, will I come home for the pillows party? She said. As of right now, yes, but there, I might be stepping behind a bench and having hockey games that weekend as a coach. But uh, so that's. But if that doesn't happen, then yeah, like that's the weekend where I'm free and I'll drive back to that for sure. Yeah. Gotcha. But this won't be as bad. Scottsdale tonight. What, yeah. You're going to play. What? What is this league? It's just like kind of a semi-pro men's league, right? Yeah. It's just like a, so my buddy, um, you know, works remote. So he moved out to Jackson Hole and they have like a semi-pro hockey team that like plays like other ski resorts like Aspen Vale and all those whatevers. Um, so there's like a men's tournament um, in Scottsdale and that team is taking guys to play in that tournament. And asked me, you know, if I want to play. I think there's like they only have like ten or eleven guys. So, um, so yeah, I was gonna. I had a flight to Tampa, but the Bills lost the Chiefs, yes, which is devastating. Mm-hmm. So, changed plans, and now I'm heading to Scottsdale tonight. So, um, play some hockey, play some golf. Um, hopefully, get some sun. I think Arizona's pretty much open i think it's kind of like florida which will be nice to maybe some indoor dining you know get a little indoor dining in Um, how much snow did you get in jersey this weekend or this week yeah we got we got buried like two feet two feet yeah we got buried wild how good do you think you'll be relative to the other players in this yeah i mean i'd probably say top one percent yeah yeah i mean i get to skate three four hours a day and i don't 
think ranks are open, you know? Right. Like if you and just you're skating against that, good you know? players too, right? Like, I mean, yeah, they're 16, yeah, 17, yeah, but yeah. not a lot of people yeah, get to I go mean, out with players that good all the time too. Yeah, so, you know, most of the time, you know, I, I run the skill sessions and we play a lot of three-on-three three at night where I'll, like, get my gear and go play. So, yeah, I mean, you know, pretty much I really haven't skated this much ever in my life. Um, even as playing, like, I didn't skate this much, you know, so. You know when um, I was the absolute best at ice hockey? So when I was 19. When it, you worked at Holiday. Yeah well, yeah, well, I worked at Holiday even at 17, but took a little bit so what i would do the shifts were 3 30 to 10 30 and i would um bring you know i'd always have my bag in my car obviously and after i closed the, there was always a 10 30 or 10 45 game so i would always go down to the locker rooms or when the guys came in say like oh do you need a guy and it would work almost every night i play like in a game almost every night but then your buddy justin and i we started just like going to get something to eat after and then coming back and skating by ourselves. And I never got as good as I did just chasing him around. You know what I mean? Right. Like, he was so good compared to me. And then I would just be out there with him instead of, like, a senior CB game where I was, like, the best player, one of the best players. You know what I mean? And then, then I would go and play a senior C game. And it's like, wow, I'm really good right now. Like, I think I could play you know, junior A, junior B or whatever. Like I, I got to a really high level. Um, so I think that's going to be a huge advantage too. Just that you're playing with good players. Like nobody gets, it's, it's really hard to get around good players. Yeah. Like a good skate. consistently. Yeah. yeah I mean, I definitely have like totally fell in love with hockey again. You know, I never did love it, but there's a time where I didn't really have it. Um, and yeah, like I'm just totally obsessed with just going out there and skating, whether it's, you know, with five or six guys doing like a skill session or, you know, one-on-one with the kid at night, three on three, it's just, it's unbelievable to have access to, to the rink and, and, you know, just playing some jams. And it's just, it's it's very, it's fortunate to have it. And, and, you know, I love the game of hockey and just skating. And so it's, it's very cool to, to have access to that and yeah we'll see how how the game translates to arizona i'm, I'm pretty confident that um we'll be able to to win a trophy but who knows you know maybe there's other guys that have a rink next to their bedroom and, and have been skating all quarantine but i don't know i doubt it reminds me of the east versus west uh basketball game in, in the wire and um the west side avon barksdale he goes to the junior college to get this like super ringer and they're kicking their ass in the first half and then the east side, they, like, have a ringer hidden on the bench. And they bring him out for the second half after they doubled the bet. And then they win it at the last second. You're, like, the, the west side guy. They already they recruited you in the open. You're going to get right out there. You better watch out. East side might have a, a ringer for Yeah, the, well, for Clayton Cutler is playing in St. Louis this weekend. So I don't think he'll be there. <laughs> so I don't know who it would be. <laughs> All right. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break in a second, and we'll be back with Richard Deitch, who was on the third ever episode of the Sportscasters back in 2011, and he's on episode three of season 11. And uh, then Anthony and I will be back for a book club. We have uh, a guest announcement to make. And then we will talk to Damon Hack. And I will warn you, there are some moments where his connection, it's not great. You know, but there's again, there's like kind of nothing I can do about that. You know what I mean? I wish I could 
talk to everyone, you know, Skype to Skype and have a perfect connection. But, you know, if I reach out to Damon and he says, yeah, I'll give you an hour. And then it turns out he's in his car waiting for his kids to do Taekwondo. And it's just a so-so connection. There's really nothing I can do, you know, so it's frustrating, but it's not, you know, the interview's not ruined. If it was, I wouldn't air it. But, you know, there's a few moments where he's maybe cutting in or out. So just to give a heads up on that. And then Anthony and I will be back and we'll plug some shit and we will both do a one last thing. Sound good? All right. We'll be, we'll be right back. My first guest today hates introductions, but he first appeared on this show on the third ever episode. He's been a mentor and a friend, and it's always great to have him on. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Richard Deitch. Hello, Richard. How are you? I'm well. What happened to my intro? I'm kidding. You know, you know how I feel about <laughs> intros. Well, the intro's pre-recorded, but it is the uh, the stunted version that you that you appreciate. You know. By the way, who, who who's the who's the leader right now in terms of the most appearances uh, media for media people on your show all time? For media people, I mean, you'd be the leader. I think. Oh, you mean? No, nah, isn't it worth it worth, worth it's got to be worth time or Lee Jenkins? I would okay, think, right? all right. So I was being too literal with the word media people, thinking you meant like media writers or something. Um, just no, people no, no, in I the media. media. Yeah, I, Jenkins is still the leader. You know, like I just had my ten year anniversary. Ten years. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And you were on the third show, and you're on the third episode of the, you know, the 11th season because one year I wanted to get a big guest. I forget who it was. So I was like, oh, it's the season premiere. So I had to jump from, like, season two to three in the middle of the year because um, I used that gimmick. <laughs> so it's the 10th year but the 11th season. So you're on the third episode. But, yeah, I think it's still Jenkins. But, you know, Jenkins frozen in time now. So... So, um, well, he's, uh, you know, he has become, uh, a major force in the Clippers management world. So he's, you know, I actually used to think, um, that, that this was going to be sort of a, and I haven't talked to Lee in a while, so this is just my own, um, perspective. I thought that the the Clippers thing would sort of be, he'd do it for a couple of years and then come back. I I don't think, I think he's going to stick within professional basketball. I, I don't expect him to return just sort of an everyday job in sports journalism. I think uh, yeah. the sense is like once you're part of that, and especially once you're part of a successful organization, um, you know, Lee's already done. He sort of already hit the top of the profession in his other life. So my sense is that probably like it's probably a cool challenge now to be part of be part of a team and and, and be part of a culture to try to, to try to win uh, in professional sports. So good on him. You know, he was so kind to me. And he's in my like top five. Anyway, someone, someone's writing about me, and uh, you know who it is. But I'm trying not to say it because you know maybe that person will decide it's not that interesting, and then I look like an idiot for having said it. But um, I was saying to them like, at the end, I was just starting to get the impression that I just had asked him one too many times. You know what I mean? But he was just such a kind guy. He's never going to say that. But it's like, how many times can you ask someone for a favor? You know, but. When when I was first starting this, actually Dave Damashek was kind of like a mentor of mine, and he's like, you got to get your people and lean on them, and then mix the other people in. And I always tried to do that, like have my core of people 
but then you know debut someone like every two shows or whatever um well yeah the trick with uh i mean even for someone like myself who was sort of at an established place like the the trick always sort of to start a sports podcast unless you're someone like as super famous as bill simmons or something like that is to you know you want to get a couple of people who have a little bit of uh cachet yep. in whatever subject matter you're doing and then you could use the fact that you've had them on to sort of give you your own credibility to get new people so like you know once you have a uh, a Lee Jenkins on or a John Wertheim. Well, if you're calling somebody who's like the, you know, the beat reporter for the Lakers, they've heard, probably heard or read these people, and it gives you a little bit of credibility to to try to get them. That you know, probably a little bit different now in the podcast world. But I know even when I started my own sports media podcast, sort of the I could always use previous guests to convince future guests to do it. I mean, like, how many times has John Orlan been? Is that even? How did I say his name wrong? Silly there, but how many times? John has he, Orlan? Yeah, yeah how many I times mean, but yeah, I mean, show? a lot. Yeah, right. I mean, he should be thanking him, giving giving him free public. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's uh, he's you know, I there's there's like a core group of people that I have sure. on who are rep- reporting this on a uh, reporting this stuff on a you know on a daily or or weekly basis. Um, yeah, but yeah, you know, I've always, at least for my niche podcast, I just try to mix between uh, people who cover the stuff, and then obviously people who are um, who have you know who have on air jobs, or or and you sort of try to mix it between uh, talking to them about their process and what they're reporting on versus those of us who actually write about uh, the business. So that's sort of been my uh, been my mix. But yeah, I mean, ultimately. You know, like you, uh, it's a, it has to be a niche podcast because, you know, I think the the only way to really have a sports podcast that has um, significant uh, listenership is to really be sports specific and have people who are well known in that sport. Or if you were sort of an early to market kind of person like Simmons or the Barstool people and, you know, you're you built up this gigantic audience and then. Um, they're just going to stick with you because you've been you've been uh, you know you've been a leader in this space for a long time. I it's I actually admire anybody who started a podcast in like the last year or two because they oh, you know it, it's 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 um yeah it's late yeah. but there are people who have started it and, and gotten success. It, it's uh, you really tip your hat to them because it's it's hard to break through. You know the very podcast listening now is very habitual. Do you see the media? Probably the, the median the median number of listeners for a podcast is one hundred and twenty four. Really? Yeah. Oh my god! I didn't know that. That's yeah. low. Yeah, oh. that's the median. So like, and that's then the median. Yep. One percent of podcasts. One percent of podcast has over what was it like twenty thousand? One percent over twenty, average of twenty thousand. Yeah, listeners. Yeah. Well, usually, I mean, again, having sort of been on. Uh, both sides of it, you know, having podcasts that have uh, a couple of times hit the six-figure mark, and then obviously podcasts that you know sometimes like Bob nine thousand or ten thousand people on it. Um, like when I was on the, the number that I the, the number that I was always told um, where you can make money 10K, or right? a nice bit of money is yeah. no fifty k. Fifty k, okay. Now you can make some you can make some money for sure on five thousand or ten thousand if you can get a sponsor that is really buying into your audience because they really want to target that audience. But 
the number that the podcast companies that I've worked for that I've always been told is like 50, you can, you can, you let's put it this way. You can probably have a podcast career, meaning that that would be your principal primary income at around 50. Okay. Now, I think a lot of people who have that and above, that's not their primary job. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's because just, yeah, it's additional money, but that, that's, Sort of that was always the number that I was told that if you can get that, then if you, if you like want to just like be podcast host for your profession, you could do it. So this is according to Axios. These are the exact numbers. The top one percent of podcasts average thirty five thousand downloads per episode. The top ten percent. Wow. The top ten percent drops to three thousand with a median <laughs> with a median of one hundred and twenty four. Yeah, so the it's literally if you're in that one percent, I mean you're 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 making a nice so change. This that's po- where this, that's where the money is. This show is around the top percent. Like I'm I'm regular. I I will get three thousand many times. Um, but that, you, do you have any sponsorship or no? nothing? And and then, and then that's yeah, not that's, even that's, close. That's hard. That's not even close to the ten thousand. That's not even close to the fifty thousand. And that's in the top ten percent. Yeah, it really does tell you something. Well, I mean, you know, at a, um, you know, for someone in your position, it's obviously sort of a labor of a labor of love. Well, I do it what for I me. Think, yeah, I do it for me. Yeah, yeah. I will say this: sort of thinking about trends heading forward, I do think that the Patreon style model, where people pay you to do the podcast, I, I think is only going to grow um, because I think that. To me, would be about specialization and specificity. So, if I could find, I'm just making this up here, okay? Sure. Like, if I could find, let's say I stopped working at the Athletic and Rogers Sportsnet, and uh, and just decided I would not do this, by the way. But like, let's say I decided to do this on my own. Like, the goal then is like, if you could find five thousand people, let's say, who would pay, uh, make this up, uh, five bucks, twenty five dollars a year or something yeah. like that for your podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, then, then you can, you know, you can, you can pay your bills. You yep. can, you can have people you do can that. Turn this into something. People do that. Yeah. The thing yeah. is, though, this is sort of the X factor here. Is well, then you got to produce and do the audio, which, I which do. for some people yeah. would be very hard. Like to me, you know, I, I, I don't know if I would do a podcast if I had to do it on my own. I, I, I appreciate Cadence Thirteen uh, for all the stuff they do. But honestly, for the fact that they produce it is the most important thing to me. It's just, they do the tech stuff. Um, so that's sort of, you know, you do it on your own. Yep. Um, every single part of it. Yeah. Right. So that's where if you could sort of Patreon it up. Well, then maybe you can make, you know, you have a certain amount of money to provide the equipment and provide the, the tech end of it that you need. And then obviously the additional money goes for the, sort of the content or the service. I do see that, though, heading forward, though. I think you're going to find people who are going to decide to sort of go out on their own in this space, and it'll be really, really interesting to see, you know, what they can do. I don't think you're going to – I'm not talking about, like, you know, Simmons level or something like that, but what if you were a uh, – I just make this up. Let's say you were like a Pacers beat writer for 15 years. You decided to leave the beat, but you really had a big following on social media. You know, the question is like, could you convert 5,000 of those people who followed you when you worked for the Indianapolis star into paying for your content or your podcast content? And that, that's something that's worth 
watching. I, sports may not be the place for that because sports is already so flooded with podcasts. But sure. again, if you're a specialist on something, like put it this way, like if uh, um, you know a year ago, if like the 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 one of the foremost COVID nineteen experts in the country just had decided like I'm going to have a, uh, a behind the paywall podcast. If you pay ten dollars a year for it, you can get all my expertise. You know, maybe hundred thousand people get that. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. it's interesting to think about the possibilities of what could exist. It's a little harder in sports because, at least at this point, there's so many podcasts that are free that you almost really have to like the person who's delivering the podcast to be maybe willing to pay for it. Well, there's been a few different times where I've had a chance to monetize this. One time, really early in the beginning. Uh, someone from the score Sirius XM channel contact, yeah, contacted good. us and was like, Oh, we want to buy the show and then you can do it for us and be on Sirius XM. And we almost did that. We had contracts, all that stuff. And then the station was canceled. They no longer had a Sirius XM station. So that went away. Then uh, one time this website called football nation, which was Carrie J Byrne and this guy, Andrew Miller in Boston, yeah, we did a football show for them for a year, got a little bit of money, and then I got sick. I didn't want to do it a second year because I didn't know what my health was going to be for that year. And then, like, really recently, like within the last 18 months, the um, the guys from Slate uh, reached out to me. I had had Josh Levine on the show a few times, and I think he made the initial contact. And they were toying around with the idea of creating a Patreon, but, like, housing it on their own. You know, like using their podcasts and they wanted to use my show to kind of pilot the technology and stuff. I think they liked the idea that I had an audience, but it wasn't a large audience and it wasn't their customers, you know. So if anything went wrong, you know, they're, you know, I but and I was so close to doing it. And then what they were telling me is that you can get a larger percentage of your people in the smaller, more niche shows. They have a closer connection to you. According to their research, yeah, there's some. There, I mean, I think there is some truth to that uh, because you you sort of have your own little um, almost community. Uh, yeah. But I mean, honestly, if you talk to someone, I would think if you talk to Josh or anybody from Slate, like, all right, well, that's great. Would you trade that for a million downloads a of week? Of course you would. Yeah. I mean, you just it's you know it's just you'd, you'd be financially. Well, I don't think they um, did it in the end. Crazy, yeah, crazy not to. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. Um, you know, it's to do it at the highest level from from my perspective, like let's say like what the New York Times Daily does and all the NPR style podcasts, it's it it's it's expensive. You have to I mean, I give the athletic a lot of credit. They have invested a ton of money in audio. In order to do it correctly, you have to spend before you can make money. Right. And that was always my frustration at Sports Illustrated. Um you know, and I think if you ask Wertheim or whoever else you have still from that place on, I think if they were being honest, they'd say the same thing. All of us who love podcasts back in like 2012, 2011, 2013, or whenever, if I have my date wrong, I apologize, but I think your audience will understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. We, we begged to get like, to, to let us do stuff, to sort of like uh, invest more money in it. And even though it wasn't going to make money then, had they actually invested and done that, then they could have been a pod. Maybe they're a podcast juggernaut now. I can't believe like, they're not. We were, <laughs> we were very. We there was our staff. Interestingly enough, was very early in wanting to do this and experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, when all the beginning people were doing stuff, you know, Simmons at ESPN, et cetera, and the thing that we always got back from the business side was 
we can't make money on it. And if we can't make money on it, we're not going to do it, which is so frustrating. Because, well, again, for, for I just five I think years. to myself, had, had Sports Illustrated done, had Sports Illustrated invested, let's say, $100,000 or something like that, wouldn't even have been a lot of money for a company like that in 2014 or 2013. Just think of where they could be in 2021 in the audio space. Yep. For five years, I was educating everyone at Sports Illustrated about podcasts. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's, yeah, I trust me. I, I understand where you're coming from. It's just, it's, uh, it's head spinning to think. Again, I don't think we would have been the ringer or bar stool, but I think we, I think Sports Illustrated could have been a major player in that, in that space because they, they had the brand name, they had the, um, respect of the marketplace with, um, you know, with a, with a journalistic sort of stamp and, I mean, you just think about that. If you really would have like just sat down with the staff, you could have had Peter King podcast, football, Tom Bertucci podcast, baseball, Michael Farber podcast. Like you, could, you yeah. would have had these tent poles to to put all the stuff around it, and then you could have had, you know, you maybe you do some like fun culture stuff, like you know the way that like places like Barstool totally marketed like that. Like again, I do. I think it would have been a hundred million dollar business. No, but I think by now it could have been a thirty million dollar business. And so, right. yeah, it was a big, it was, it was a, it was a big miss. And, uh, yeah, for me at least, I mean, I certainly, am, you know, I don't regret leaving. I mean, going to athletics, one of the best professional decisions I ever made, but it does still bum me out because I think like there were a lot of us at SI who really wanted to do this and quite frankly wanted to do it for no money. We just wanted to do it to do it. And, uh, and it, they were too slow to the punch. Yeah. I can't believe the athletics five years old already, but yeah, I just, I, know. I think back to 2011, the first year I did this and 95% of my guests were from sports illustrated. And I think about right. all those guys that were there, how great they are and how many of them in 2020 have podcasts for other places. Yeah. Not just that, but like, again, like it just, you know, it, it, because everything was later to the market, like a, a perfect example is worth time. Like Wertheim's tennis podcast should have a hundred thousand listeners. If you just think about right. the global reach of tennis yeah. and where he stands in terms of the sport, right? And it doesn't. I mean, I honestly know John could tell you what the numbers are. I just know it's not that. I'm sure it's not that. Would be in but the top one like, percent. <laughs> he might be. I don't know. Yeah, it would be. Right? If it had a hundred thousand, it'd be in the top half percent. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Such, it was such a missed opportunity. And then if you go around the globe, there's a lot of tennis podcasts that exist. Um, but I don't even know if there's a dominant leader, but had that thing been sort of, um, marketed and produced and really pushed out, like, you know, he could have a tennis podcast. That's like, again, just, you know, a juggernaut, uh, in terms of like a niche sport podcast. So, um, or Grant Wall, yeah, yeah. It, it, Grant it, Wall could yeah, add the soccer, soccer right? But yeah. I, I give him credit. He's he has um, he started a podcast in his post uh, yeah. Sports Illustrated Probably doing great life. Um, yeah, and he's gotten amazing guests and stuff. Uh, but again, very hard for Grant in the sense that you know he start he he entered the market right. Where there's already a billion podcasts. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not even the soccer ones. It's just it's hard to convince people to invest more time in a podcast if they're sure. listening to eight podcasts a week. Sure. And, you know, in 2020, we had this thing, you know, I read an article, you know, in the maybe three months into the pandemic about how, you know, almost 700,000 new podcasts had emerged in that time. And 
the total number of hours of listening had decreased in that same time period because people yeah. weren't driving to work anymore, weren't commuting to work anymore. Yeah, that's that. My, my, mine's taken a hit from that. Yeah. Um, I've probably. I don't, know if I, I don't want to break the, my contract here, but eh, whatever. I'm not going to use broad numbers. I mean, I'm probably down 35%, something like that. Right. Uh, yep. Since, since maybe even sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on my guests. But you really, I've realized, and again, I have a niche podcast. Like, like let's remind anybody to use that word underlined. But it, the COVID has been a reminder of how many people I probably do have listening to me, like, on their bus on the way to work, yep. uh, in their car, uh, if you can take a train, especially like in big cities where, you know, you can listen to you know, podcasts on the train. Like, it's just, it's like the, the numbers just since March of 2020, you can sort of just see the, um, you can see the drop. And I know talking to Trana, who, Jimmy Trana, who yep. has, uh, who does the SI Media podcast now, same thing for him. Yep. Um, his his numbers are down the way mine are. So well, one thing I um, and I think for 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 I was gonna say for us and probably for you too, uh, COVID is really really hits harder because you're all, you're already dealing with a smaller base of people. So it's you know it's it's one thing if you had you know hundreds of thousands of people. If you lose some, you still have hundreds of thousands of people listening. It's a little different for a niche podcast, right? Well, one thing that I. I don't know if I learned it as a trick or one thing I've been very focused on doing is putting the podcast up in the middle of the night so that they're there in the morning. Yeah, the, the cadence guys will say 3 a.m. is a great time to release a podcast for that exact reason. Yep, I always like usually wake up like I go lay down like at 10 o'clock and like get up at like 12 or 1230 and work on it for an hour and put it up because I just yep, that's I, smart. I know people want to listen to it in the morning. You know, that's when they want, you know, if, if someone's enthusiastic about what you do, when I try to cater to those six or seven people, you know, I want to make sure that it's there for them when they want it. So that's something I've been doing. Uh, this, yeah, that's smart. This is all fascinating, but I want to hit a couple media things before you got to go. Um, right. The first thing is, oh, first thing quickly, what do you think about the WWE putting their network on Peacock. Interesting, right? Because they always tend to be on the front end of things like, you know, pay-per-view, cutting edge of that, you know. Um, even the network itself, how early they started it, really early in the streaming network platform. The 24-7 streaming service they had like in 2009 on their website. It just seems interesting to me. And now with NBC Sports Network going down, we're going to see a lot of their properties on peacock you think this is like a wave of the future are a lot more are we going to need seven or eight subscription services to watch all the games we want like what do you think about the wwf and what that might say for the future all right well the second one your short answer to that is yes you're, you're like you're gonna have to make decisions as a sports fan to decide how many streaming services you want because right. there's going to be a lot of streaming services and it's going to be basically um are you a more of a sports specific fan or if you're someone who loves all the sports, it's going to cost you money uh, more than you probably paid for cable. So right. that that's ultimately going to be decision. So that's one. Uh, I think the WWE uh, Peacock um, partnership is phenomenal for both. It's actually one of these business deals where it's a great deal for both sure. places. If you're, if you're WWE, you get onto this um, uh, growing streaming brand with millions and millions of, people who have already opted to pay for it 
you get um, the potential for people who are on Peacock, like watching The Office or NBC shows, to sample your product. That's probably not, you probably would not have had the opportunity to have a chance to get those people to sample that product without that. You're obviously getting a ton of money from Peacock for your inventory. So, you know, you've made, once again, um, more money in your U.S. domestic market. So you're getting reach and you're getting money. And if you're Peacock, you're getting this, you know, incredibly valuable programming, uh, which draws, you know, two million people religiously each week to watch Raw or uh, or SmackDown. Um, you make Peacock that much more valuable because you're, you know, you're going to add. If you're a WWE hardcore fan, you're definitely getting Peacock. I mean, there's just, yep. you know, like, it's not even going to be a no-brainer yeah, for it's you. It's half the price. So what you were paying, right? Yeah. So you're bringing them into the market and. You know, if they like Peacock beyond WWE, the likelihood is they're going to tell people word of mouth about this service. So to me, and it also just strengthens the relationship between NBC Universal and the WWE, uh, given the long term USA network relationship there. So uh, it's a win win for both. And um, I I would think if they're not really a perfect equivalent for WWE, but you you will you will. You'll see other places sort of do, I think, similar things. There's, it's it's going to be harder to be a standalone streaming service for a league or an entity. And if you can get under a bigger place, you know, the sort of Netflix philosophy, right. um, I think you're in a better better position. But yeah, I, th- I thought a great deal for both parties. I think as Vince McMahon gets older, too, I sort of feel like they're trying to squeeze every cent in a way. You know, I wonder if this opens up the opportunity for Comcast to buy them. You know, um, I, I, I deal, my only thought is that I don't think I, I think it's very possible Vince might even put in the session plans or will yeah. that the, the, the company is not to be sold for 50 years or something like that. You, think like so? I, you don't think he wants the other thing the... is, yeah, No, I think I mean, I also think like, no, I think he wants his family to maintain that even okay. after his death. And I actually think Stephanie McMahon and. And Triple H and I don't really I mean Shane is always sort of a tough one to figure out, but right. like I, their whole life is wrestling. Do you really think like they they would just want to cash out for money? Money's not really an issue for that group. I, I I'd be stunned if they ever sold unless they got into some financial trouble. Interesting. I wouldn't be as stunned as you, but um I would be, I guess I would be surprised. You make a good point about their lives. I mean look think I just thinking about all the pictures I've seen of Stephanie in the last year and a half of her at 10, 12, 13 years old next to a rest. You know what I mean? Like it has been their entire lives have been. Yeah. And I, yeah. and they're, I mean, they, they have younger kids who yep. they can sort of bequeath the business to, I mean, you know, it's a corporation. It's not just McMahon, you know, trying to get the territories anymore or Vince senior or whatever. But, uh, sure. you know, it, it's, but I, I would, I would really be surprised. I, I just, I, I, I think that's the legacy of that family, and I would be stunned if they if they gave it up. Um, there, you know, there's an argument to be made that if other people were running creative, it could be better. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I do think, uh, you know, obviously, I have an immense respect for what Vince McMahon built. Yep. I do, I do think if he if he's as involved as he still seems to be, um, that's in one some ways good for the product, in other ways very bad for the product because right. he's very wedded. To a certain kind of wrestler and a certain kind of style, creative. One th- um, one thing that the network has not did fail a little bit at. David Shoemaker, who 
is one of the most eloquent speakers and writers about wrestling in the world. I don't yeah. know if you've seen uh, it. He was amazing in the Andre documentary. You know, the, obituary, yeah, yeah. the obituaries he used to write on Deadspin, amazing stuff he's done in Ringer. He said to me the smartest thing I've ever heard anyone say about wrestling on this podcast. He said, wrestling exists in people's past. And um, the network, of course, has hours and hours of all of the stuff that they have in their vault. But they didn't – they focused too much on you can see the pay-per-views here. You can see the pay-per-views here. I think they need to embrace the nostalgia aspect of wrestling. I think it's everything for them. Uh, and I think Peacock is going to do that. I don't know if you noticed, but when Peacock launched, they had a bunch of wrestling stuff on there already, and it was all legacy stuff. You know, hmm, so I wonder if they they will lean on that a little bit more because they've only scratched the surface of what they have. Um, okay, I want to do one more. Oh, did you see your boy? Uh, your boy Conrad has another podcast. You you know, Kurt Angle. That's good. I think that I think if again, the thing with all those podcasts is if the co-host, you know, in this case Kurt Angle, is honest and willing to talk. And if he remembers anything, and does he remember anything? Yeah. Right. So it's honestly just it's really it's really just a question of how far um, angle will go. If you've listened to that podcast as long as I have, you know, the reason why Bruce the Bruce Pritchard Something to Wrestle with podcast was amazing in the beginning was because he just was honest. He right. he gave you so much stuff behind the scenes you never had. That podcast now and it's I dead. like Bruce. No it's dead. It's just, yeah, you, it's just not the same. He, no. I mean he's muzzled. He's he's he's, he's tongue tied yep. because of working at WWE. Conversely, I think since Bischoff has cut his wrestling ties, his is better uh, for the most part, except for AW. It's a much better podcast. It's just he and JR's is he let the rip. JR's is the best. Yeah, JR's JR just great recall. Great he has great he, recall, great story. Yeah, great recall. Yeah, uh, actually, all those guys do. Bruce recall. Well, and, you know, Shivani and, uh, and they figured out what to do with Shivani. Right, because he had Shivani, no recall. Yeah, his recall wasn't great, but that, doing watch-alongs is pretty good because I think Shivani's a very good in-the-moment kind of uh, thing. And then Arn, I, the, thing I, the thing with Arn is like Conrad didn't promise anything other than sort of Arn being um, pretty by the book. So that's there's no expectations there either way. The angle one has great potential just because of if he will get into like what things were like during his heyday, that would be an incredible podcast because he was part of some of the biggest promotions ever. You know I like Conrad, and I, he's a little mad at me because I called him out when he was on my podcast for stealing people's money with that original Bruce Pritchard Patreon. And that that's just not cool. It's still not cool, and I know he didn't like it that I brought it up. It's the one podcast he was ever on he didn't promote, and I know that's why. But um, the problem with his stuff is – it's like when showrunners get their first show and it's a huge hit. Like the guys who created, you know, uh, oh, what the hell is their names? Um, Two and a Half Men. Those guys, then right. that was a huge hit. And then next thing you know, they had six podcasts. And none of them were ever as good as when they just had Two and a Half Men because they're stretched so thin. You know, I feel like Conrad suffers from that a little bit. I mean, he stretched so thin that Nothing will ever be as great as the first year of of um, Pritchard, but he's such a great salesman that and businessman that it probably doesn't matter how great it is. You know what I mean? Like, well, again, I would just, no. I know what you're saying. I mean, ultimately, like when it, this always happens with anything. I mean, just once you sort of add sequels and stuff, it's very yep. hard to have the original. But 
you know, if you're Conrad, I uh, can't speak for him. I think you just want to try to maintain the highest potential quality that um, you can have on all these podcasts. You think he's worried about and, that? I think he's going on a quantity uh, play. No, no. I mean, I think. I, I mean, again, without knowing the guy, I think the real question is going to be: Can he st- can he keep doing the mortgage business? <laughs> uh, maybe he could just. Maybe he has people who are doing the day to day. I think he does. Um, yeah. He he's he. The, the the reason that podcast works is because he, one, he does his research, and two, he's such a legit fan. Sure. And like. That that's why it works. It, it works obviously first and foremost because of who he has. Like he 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 has people like Jr. who were you know they were they were they were there. They're they're in the middle of the fight. You can't you know ultimately you need that or there's no show. But the the still genius of that podcast is Conrad is a, such a fan and he has watched this stuff and he's lived it that his questions or the conversation is that of a fan. He certainly has and, the knowledge. Yep, he has the knowledge. Right, he's, he's prepared. got product knowledge. Yep. And, like, you can't think he's got that. a team like, now. You know, sometimes I, yeah, sometimes I'll do an interview, and I might not know, like, everything about the broadcast, everything the broadcaster has done, and it's like a different interview if, if you know, compared to, let's say, if I'm interviewing Kevin Harlan, whose stuff I know really well. Like, it's just, you can tell. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt that, um, he stretched in, and I think some of the podcasts each week will not be as good as some of the other podcasts. But I think, by and large, um, by and large, that 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 network is still excellent. And again, the guy the guy created a business out of fandom, which is phenomenal, just in itself. And he's getting thirty dollars ahead on Patreon from people. But they've they've made that decision to pay, right? I, yeah, choice. hey, good for that. No, I'm saying like, wow, good for him. He can get thirty dollars, like yeah. unbelievable, you know. And at least now yeah. he's delivering. No, I, I mean again, I I am I am, you know, he he's he's delivering the he's, content at least now. Well, I was just gonna say he's in a great position because he's a business person, so he understands he's amazing the, at it, amazing the economics of it. It's not like a journalist or a writer who's who's doing this because they love the content, and then they got to figure out the business part. You know, he's 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 already got, I feel like, the harder part sort of fixed, which is the business side, and then the content sort of comes. So, yeah, he's, you know, I think he's pretty realistic, though, in that, um, you know, I think he knows there's a shelf life on all this. Uh, the question is how long is shelf life? It's lasted longer than I imagine he expected. In well, terms I think of if he can keep refreshing he, it with new yeah. people, he can go for almost forever. Correct. You know? That would be the, yeah. yeah. I, I, when he was announcing who... You know, he kept announcing or sort of hinting that we're going to have a major announcement. You figured it was a new podcast. I actually thought it was going to be Hogan. That was my guess. Oh wow! But Angle's a good one too. Yeah. Well, he better not have Hogan. Now, I don't know how good. I don't know how good Hogan would be. Well, I just started um, a Hogan you podcast. To, you have to pay him a ton of money because why else would he do it? Right. But, like if he had the recall, that could be the best one. Right. You know what he does have, even if he doesn't have the recall, and Bruce had this is the bullshit. Right. The the genius of of Bruce was yeah. if he didn't remember. He just made up a story to remember. You know what I mean? Correct. Like, he's so good at that. All right, I, we got to do one more thing. I'm sorry I'm keeping you long today, but that's all right. All right. All right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Barstool. They're fascinating to me because I'm not a – I'm a little too old, I think, for Barstool. You know, my younger brothers love it. I have a cousin who just graduate, graduated college, and, like, if I have him in the – Christmas Santa, Secret Santa. You know, I just go to like barstool.com, go to the shop and like eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and he's the happiest kid, you know, like. So I'm a little, I think, too old for it. I, I'm not a big guy. I don't really listen to their podcast much, but they fascinate me because they're the most incredible, like, 
just engine. You know, they're, they're, they they created this brand loyalty. Like anything they – look at the $33 million they've raised for, you know, small businesses right. and how amazing that is. And then I, I look at all the good things they do, but I also find there's this other segment of people who just hate these people, hate these guys. Like have you followed what's going on with the Women's Hockey League at all? Not much, no. Like the CEO is a parent. I, mean, I know, I know the, I know, you know the, the I know the broad stroke. We're like, yeah, okay, I mean, listen, they, you're a woke dude. To, Hold on, let me finish real quick. I am a woke dude. You are a woke. I, I, I hate, I hate that, I hate that word. Okay, give me a better one. Yeah. Give me a better one to describe it. I, I, a progressive. I mean, in some areas, and I'm probably conservative in others. I, oh, my, my, I haven't my, seen one. My biggest. Well, because you were living through the Trump year, I made it very clear on social media how I feel about. Um, uh, about Trump and his enablers, but you know, you got to keep in mind, like, you know, I was alive during, uh, George Bush and, you know, in a different kind of, and everyone uh, hated him, right? Republican. And I voted, listen, I, I think people would be surprised. I voted for Republicans before in my life. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm very, very honest ago, about man. how I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not 30 years ago. I'm very honest <laughs> about how I feel right. about, um, uh, about Trump. But, uh, in terms of inter- to to sort of be quick on barstool here is yeah. I need they to have finish my point. The, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I would say the, obviously what they've done with the barstool fund is phenomenal, and uh, uh, and helping out small businesses. It's an amazing it's amazing stuff they do. They have to though own their uh, misogyny, and they have to own the stuff that they have done uh, in the past. And in some ways, they also have to own their fans who. Um, end up harassing people online. So when it comes to the, the that, that hockey league, they cannot be surprised if there is backlash from some people who don't want their involvement in anything, even if it's promotional. And so I would just say, like, um, you know, ultimately, both of those parties will probably go their own way. Like the end, the the women's hockey league is sort of gonna is gonna ultimately do. And they'll be, the, they'll be the they'll be the losers. Well, they're not gonna. I, I mean, I, I don't know how you could sort of say that. Like, ultimately, they'll they'll either find sponsorship or partners, or they won't. And in Barstool's case, nothing is going to change for them if they end up partnering with this league or not. It seems to me that the 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 interest is from Erica Nardini, who is a legit big women's hockey fan. Yep. And so, in her case, you know, she, I think clearly is going to, if she wants to get involvement in this, is going to have to find a league uh, that's cool with her barstool affiliation, or I guess it's very possible. Maybe she just tries to form her own league at a certain point. Uh, you know, she has a ton of money. I, I don't know if he, she has enough money to form a major professional hockey league, but, um, but yeah, I mean, listen, it, it, you know, these questions that come up, it, it just, it, it can't be a surprise on either side. There, there are people who dislike them, and I think they have legit reasons to dislike them. And then at the same time, like if you're going to also be honest, you recognize Barstool's prominence in the in the media landscape, and you absolutely give them praise for like raising that money to help small business. Like that's a you know that's a phenomenal thing. It, it, I'm sure some people are like, well, they're doing this to you know as a cover to make themselves like look good. Like I don't care. Like I just want the small business. Yeah, I'm sure all help. those business people so, getting like, their money don't give a shit what their motivation is, right? He, correct. Here's right. here's so my I, here's I my that. problem. Now now now, right. I, now I will say like <laughs> you know 
it's all I would just say it's all relative. Like if you told me like, well, how would I feel if Donald Trump gave a million dollars to X? I'd be like, well, I think it's more PR than anything else. So, again, we're all high to what our sort of, you know, what is really our focus and our sort of individual belief system in who's full of shit, who's not. Okay, go on. Okay, here's what here's what bothers me about Trump. Like, I'm not a Trump guy. Okay, I'm not. But I'm you strike me as a Trump guy. I'm not. Okay. I'm not. See, I'm a Re- I'm a Reagan Republican. I don't hide that. Are you? I, no, I thought you were a Chris Collins Republican. <laughs> Chris Collins. Yeah. No, I was born and raised <laughs> in the in the Reagan era. You know, I have right. strong. I know. Listen, I live in Western New York. Western New York, I find to be outside of the city of Buffalo, is far more. Oh, uh, I, you, you want the election? You want liberal, the election? Don't you, don't you agree? Yeah, you want the election What's numbers? That? You want the election numbers? I actually, yeah, happen right I am. Here. Actually, yeah, I'd be very. Interested. Okay, hold on. So I, 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 I got them on my notes app because I was just curious myself. Yeah. Okay, so in this election, I would think I would think like Biden may win like Amherst and Williamsville, but then I think Trump's going to win Chictawaga, so Lackawanna, the Buffalo right. Niagara region. It's eight counties. Trump won right. seven. Biden won one. Erie. <laughs> okay, what did Biden win? Erie. Erie, and he won it. 50, yeah, yeah, I figured that. Fifty-one forty-nine, two points. That's it in Erie County, which includes. <laughs> okay. Oh. Oh, All right, oh, the oh. votes. Wow, that's tight. Listen that's to tight. the votes. Total votes in the eight regions: yeah. three hundred and twenty-one thousand for Trump, two hundred and seventy-six thousand for Biden, a forty-five thousand margin in six hundred thousand combined votes. So that's wow, interesting. Do, do you do you happen to know if uh, I'm sure Trump beat Hillary there? Do you happen to know if Obama won Erie? I mean, won the seven. Like what he did back then in those eight counties, that'd be interesting to me. I know he, he didn't. I know he didn't win Niagara because I live in Niagara. Yeah, and I know Obama yeah, I did not win Niagara. I know he did win Erie. Yeah. Um, I don't know yeah. the like yeah, sort I mean, of more outskirts. You know, I'm not surprised. Usually, um, usually I think a Democrat wins Erie, but it's not. It's not. It's it's always tight. It's a very. It's not like New York City or something like that. Wow, that's interesting. I did not know that. Um, it's, it's, I would also say, just given my, and again, I haven't lived in Western New York, as you know, sure. in like 20 years. I am not sure there would have been any other Democrat who could have won Erie other than Biden this year. My guess. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. I, I think that, you know, I think Biden won Erie on anti-Trump votes more than Biden vote. I don't think there's like. Yeah, this, I'm just, yeah maybe. Maybe you're right. Yeah. I think it's still, it still is a, it's, it's, it's more of a centrist kind of place than left-leaning, except for, like, you know, the, the like Allentown. University of Buffalo yeah, Allentown. and yeah, the city. and Amherst and Allentown. That, that's different. Uh, so this is going to be my point. My point was going to be that hate Trump, and it's fair. He's easy to hate, and I'm not a Trump guy. I voted right. for him one of the two times. Didn't vote for him the first right. time. Voted for him the second I'll, time. I'll, I'll, I'll try to forgive you, but go ahead. Sure. Uh, but I voted – well, you probably wouldn't even like what I voted. I wrote in a, a Republican governor the first time. When when You remember that first debate? I think there were 16 guys on the stage, the very first in 2015. The next day, me and my yeah. brother were both conservatives. We ranked who we would want to get the nomination, 1 to 16. I had Trump 16. He had him 15. So that's where I'm coming from here, okay? Who, who did you have won back then? I had Chris Christie won. Or- Chris Christie. Okay. Yeah, I right. Chris Christie won. That's very, you know, that's the first one, so very early in the cycle. And I think towards, yeah, no, I, understand. I think towards the end, I think I maybe wanted Kasich a little bit, you know. Um, yeah, I yeah. also he's, he's reasonable. Um, okay, so here's the thing I don't like about okay, you want to hate Trump, fine, but like people on the Lincoln Project, especially, like what happened to your conservative ideals though? 
Like, all of a sudden, because you hate Trump, you hate, like, every conservative policy? You know what I mean? Like, I, well, I, there's I a disconnect I, I mean, there I, that I, I don't I, understand. I can't, yeah, I, I can't speak for them. Hopefully I won't get myself in trouble here. I, I think that they have made a decision specific to Trump and those they feel have enabled Trump and certainly, um, you know, in Lincoln Project's mind, and I think millions of others, obviously, uh, lying about election results leading ultimately to that horrible day on January 6th. I think, and again, I, I cannot speak for these guys. I still think, though, that if you ask those guys, maybe not Steve Schmidt, but if you ask the other guys in the Lincoln Project, like, do they believe in small government? Uh, do they believe in death penalty or something like that? I, I think a lot of them would still say, yeah, I don't, I don't think they've abandoned conservatism as much as they are so targeted on the Trump well, wing what, of the party, whatever which, the thing which is, I acknowledges millions and millions of people. They're creating a very much they're, they're opening the door then for every liberal idea to to blossom. I mean, look at the, the I don't know. I mean, I, look at the I, first I three weeks, for, first two weeks of this administration already. It's a, it's a wet, it's a liberal wet dream. I would say you're giving you're giving them a lot of. I mean, well, I'm just using them as an example. I'm just using them as an example. You know what I mean? But look, at we're drifting away from the point. See, this was the brilliance yeah, of Trump. Yeah, let's get out of it. The brilliance of Trump was he f- somehow finds a way to make everything about Trump, right? And I didn't want it to be about that. What uh, I was trying I'm to say. I'm not sure I'd call that brilliance. I, I would call that. Uh, whatever you want to call I, it. I would call that pathology and, and, and narcissism to the highest order. But correct. I mean, the, it was the a, center it, of the center of the center of the universe in America. And, and, and if you extend it, the center of the media universe in America for the last four years was one singular person. Right. Correct. And here's no what, argument. Here's what happens online. You mentioned like the misogyny, the things that what happens is with these words, these buzzwords, the definition of them expands to a point where anything that isn't what the person using the word wants is that. You know what I mean? Well, so, I mean, so all of a sudden, I, 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 something that would have been a joke, something that would have been, you know, a small it's you you get these labels, these labels on people, these labels on entire platforms, on entire shows like it's just it's it's there's a level of it, it's just out of control. You know what I mean? Well, can for, we, I mean, can we I, I, I can we at least me and you, you agree on like there's a line of being like an asshole or not. And if sort of people just sort of. Sure. Laid on that line on the right way, we'd probably all be in a better place. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of heated d- discussion and topic and debate about cancel culture, and you know, and like, do you think Dave like Portnoy's bo- a racist? Do you believe that? You think Dave Portnoy's a racist because uh, he got caught singing a Ja Rule sign and instead of a Ja Rule song and instead of like not saying the N word, he did, which was dumb. Yeah, shouldn't I, have done I, that. I, but I don't, I, does that make him a yeah, racist? I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know him well enough to make that term, but I, I mean, I usually hold that that word. Like to me, that's a very you know that word has meaning. First of all, I'm a white guy. Like to right. sort of like so. Okay, so does misogynist. You know, so does xenophobic. On that, so like, yeah, I would homophobic. Say like, you know, all like, those labels they have meaning, and we just apply them so liberally. Right. And I think, and I think, I think it's very clear. I think it's very clear when you see someone who's. Um, homophobic and then in terms of you know when it comes to like sort of racist stuff i like you know if you support policies that uh are against people of color or that try to disenfranchise people of color's vote yeah you're racist to me i mean well, pretty clear i mean now i'm not that's not that's not that's not a portnoy thing that's sort of a overall thing but yeah i understand what you're saying in terms of 
I agree with you in this sense. Like these are really like these words have meaning and it's important. Like if you're going to use those words or use that charge, like it's important that, 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 that you can back that up. But there's like real, there's real evidence towards that. But I am the first to say that like when it comes to some of the stuff, um, you know, sexism and racism, like as and both of us are white males and you have to be honest and understand the perspective that we are coming from versus someone who is a woman or someone who's a person of color in terms of, you know, in terms of that, those kind of things. That's, that's how I would end. All right, Richard. Well, I kept you longer than I should have, but I always appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. I appreciate everything you've done for me in 10 years. It's actually, it's meant a lot. And you're a big, re- you know, so coming on episode three, you know, coming all, on all these times since, even though I got to email you 31 times to uh, to get you. But I love that about oh, you. Oh, you're not paying me anything, <laughs> so they're paying me an email. Listen, do you have any questions for me? No, my only thing to you would be like I, I respect it, that you've been doing this and grinding it as an independent for so long. So I just I hope you keep doing it, even if you're not making money on it, or even if it costs a little bit of a little bit of money outside of your pocket. You should do it because it's obviously a passion project, and to me, like we got to have those kind of passion projects in the audio space. Well, yeah, I was saying to someone, they're like, "Oh, you've done it for ten years. That's so great." It's like, well, yeah, but you know, if I do, if I can do it for thirty, and you know, like I'm the I'm the one who has to cut it, right? <laughs> it's not like I have a boss. It's like Man, the quality's dipped. We got to get that thing off of there. You know what I mean? But look, I just really appreciate you. I really honestly do. I, I know you don't like if I say that or whatever, but I appreciate you. And um, I I need to, a favor, though. You got to check out the Hulk Hogan podcast I started. You got to listen will. to yeah, it. Yeah, it's one. on my list because yeah. I, I do like, uh, I like that topic. I will do that. Yeah, and it's, you know, we do this thing. We read the news and we go to the month of the, the, the month that the match was in and we just kind of read what was going on in the world then. You know, and try to put ourselves in context of that that time and space, and I think you'd enjoy it. So I want you to at least check that out for me. Yeah, no, it's good. It's I like I like the idea a lot. All right. One of these days, I will mention it in my column. I'll, I will get around to it. <laughs> you just as long as you link the other thing that may be coming. I think that's what I really want out there. But we'll see what happens with that. All right. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you, sir. As always. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high Thanks to Richard Deitch for being on the podcast You know, Richard is one of those guys who kind of crosses over from guest to mentor you know, he's kind of always been a mentor to me, and I appreciate uh, his renewed enthusiasm for the show and for coming on every time I ask him to. Thanks to Richard. All right, we're going to get to David Hack in a second, but really quickly, I wanted to update the book club. I mentioned last week that the first book of the year is Hockey's Hot Stove, The Untold Stories of the Original Insiders. By L. Strachan. Do you remember the um, hot stove on Hockey Night in Canada, Anth? Uh, kind of. Yeah. What, what? I guess kind of is a no. What it was was they would have the double headers, 
Um, and in between the first and second game, usually there was time, so they would do like a panel with a bunch of like, you know, hockey insiders. Yeah, this is pre Twitter, obviously, you know, pre podcasts. And they would just say what they're hearing. And it was on it was like everyone watched it across the league. You know, like it was on in locker rooms and general managers' offices and houses across Canada and obviously in the United States. I was always staying up because Bray was often in that second game. So I would get home from work and that would be on. And I would want to watch Bray and kind of fall asleep. And I would watch Ron McLean would panel it with, you know, four or five guys. Uh, who were covering the league on the inside. So it was really cool, and it's a really good book so far. I'll have to send it to you. You'll like it. Um, so that's the first book of the book club for 2021. Now, this kind of came together quickly, uh, but there is a second book, and the writer of the second book uh, is going to be on the podcast. When am I talking? February 9th at 3.30 is the interview. So that's probably the next show. And the book is called You Can't Lose Them All, uh, Tales of a Degenerate Gambler and His Ridiculous Friends by Cousin Sale. Uh, so it will be the debut of uh, Jimmy Kimmel's Cousin Sale, uh, who, of course, is no longer with Kimmel. He does all kinds of stuff. He has a podcast network about gambling with Dave Damashek, and he does a gambling show on Fox Sports 1 and does the Simmons podcast where they guess the lines and Parent Corner, and all that stuff. So uh, probably the next episode, Cousin Sal will make his debut. Again, the book is called You Can't Lose Them All. And it is available now, as is Hockey's Hot Stove, The Untold Stories of the Original Insiders. All right, with that said, we'll take a break, and we will come right back with Damon Hack. Our second guest today has been coming on the Sportscaster since 2011. He talks about golf for Golf Channel, even though I miss his gamers so very much. He's joining us today to do a special one hour on Tiger Woods. A warm Sportscaster's welcome to one of the kindest men in sports media, Damon Hack. Hey, Damon, how are you doing, buddy? Steve, I'm great, buddy. How you been? Oh, you know, I'm doing good. The podcast turned 10 years old since we talked last. How about that? It's incredible. What a what a feather in your cap, you know, in this uh, uncertain media landscape with shifting sands. Uh, you've been a, a constant, man. That speaks uh, highly of your work and the interviews you've been able to do. Yeah, I mean, and I'm also lucky because, you know, the only way to get canceled is if I cancel myself. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> it's <laughs> a good point yeah so, so i'm hanging in there you know thanks to the boss but i just looked and, and you debuted season one episode 30 so uh probably that would probably be the uh, fall of 2011 and i remember the first time you had done a jets and i've told talked about this before on here that the jets and broncos Monday Night Football game. You wrote a game, one of my all-time favorite gamers for SI back when they did those. And uh, that's when I reached out and uh, had you on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love that uh, 
you know, you uh, and I, we go back before I was even on television and you've always been so kind about my writing and my game stories and often say how much you miss my NFL game story. I do. Every now and then I'll go back, I'll go back and look at some old stories uh, just to kind of remind myself, well, I used to be able to write pretty darn well, you know, back in the day, whoever that Damon Hack was that I saw, <laughs> he wasn't bad. You feel like it's a muscle kind of though, right? You know what I mean? It's like if you don't work that muscle for a while, I feel like, uh, you know, but I think for a guy like you, it'd be like getting on a bike. If you ever, if you ever, and you've done stuff for, for golf.com and golf magazine, I think too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Here and there. Right. Yeah, I, I do. And it, it is funny. And I think you're hundred percent right. It is like a muscle. You got to exercise it. You got to use it or lose it. And so I, I make sure that I write, you know, whether it's even just writing like in bumps at a break for television or writing for the the dot-com world, golfchannel.com. I, you know, wrote a couple of columns this past year. So I, I still, I don't write as much as I used to. Uh, I'm not as good of a writer as I used to be, at least I don't think. But I, I, I do try to at least kind of know that, uh, you know, I before E except after C. So I try to remember a few of the, okay. <laughs> the rules that helped me along the way. Could you ever see yourself doing something with writing ever again in a more full-time way like could you ever see yourself say oh i'm going to take six months and do a book or could you see yourself taking a writing job here or do you think you're just kind of a tv guy now no i definitely um in fact i've considered doing a couple of different book projects Uh, i've had a couple fall through i've had a couple that kind of are still percolating Uh, nothing is confirmed at this point but i still love the literary world and love writing and love reading. Um, and I think that it's still a, a very big part of who I am. So um, I've got some great bosses who have told me that if I do, ever do write a book, that they would help um, with the, uh, you know, media blitz as it were, help a little advertising, get some buzz for, for any potential book that I do. So don't have anything in cooking yet, but uh, some ideas are percolating at minimum. Well, one thing that we've done pretty consistently together is we've talked about Tiger Woods because, look, at you can't talk to a guy over and over about golf for 10 years and not talk about Tiger Woods, right? I mean, it, it'd it be impossible. He's, he's, a, he's a part of the fabric of the game in the same way that Wayne Gretzky would be for hockey or Michael Jordan for basketball or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anything impressive here. It's just, but we've never really taken the time to really discuss it, like to really, and that's kind of what I want to do today. Instead of asking you about McElroy or the U.S. Open or all these other topics, like we're just gonna dial in on that for a minute and see what we get. Love it, man. Love it. He is, uh, he is endlessly fascinating. Maybe even more so in his forties than he was in his twenties. That's for sure. So. Armin Katayan and Jeff Benedict wrote a book called Tiger, and I read it a couple. I think it's a couple years now, and and I, I enjoyed it. It was enlightening, and um, part of me thought, when starting to read it, that I would say, "Aha! I told you," and kind of justify the way I've sort of always felt about Woods. I've never been a big fan of his. Um, never been a, you know, I, I don't know. I think there was a time there where he just got a little boring, right? Where where that he was so far out ahead of someone, I just wish he had a rival or something. 
you know, and I and I think mm. I took it out on him, you know, like oh him again, you know, like oh this guy, you know, and 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 then maybe he suffered a little bit at times of just being kind of so polished and boring a little bit. And I thought I'd read this book and say, you know, aha. But then what happened was I read the book and I got a little bit of a greater appreciation for his rise back. You know, that the human in me said, man, you know, this isn't as simple as I thought. And this guy, everything he went through, and also as a guy who's had his problems with health and surgeries, I kind of related to his rise back and appreciated that. Um, which was a, a little, I was a little surprised about that. Uh, and then, so so then this book, and, and I think other things, um, they created a documentary based on that for HBO, a two-part documentary, and I watched that. And I didn't enjoy that nearly as much as the book. And we'll talk about why. But first, I want to ask you, I think you said you have read the book, right? Did you see the documentary? All, all of the above. Okay. Re- read the book, enjoyed it, and, and watched both parts of the doc. Okay. I loved the book. I thought it was well-researched. There was a lot of stuff I didn't know. I learned a lot. The documentary is more of a C, B- for me. Uh, part two was better than one. Part one felt really rehashed. you know. And I don't know if it's just because I had read the book, although I did hear see some golf fans online saying, you know, you know, there's no new, no, nothing new here. And I kind of felt the same way. I thought the the video of him at his girlfriend's house playing like the fake saxophone on the ground that was kind of interesting just to see that side of him. Um, I thought that you know, and I'm going to be real, you know, obviously very careful as a white guy here, but I just thought some of the race stuff. I don't know. It felt like well, you know, I just was watching a thing and it went so much. A part of part one was just race, 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 and I just felt like this is not Tiger. He transcends this to me a little bit. You know, I don't know. Um, and then part two I thought was better, uh, but I don't know. Generally speaking, then we'll get more specific. What did you think of the documentary? Yeah, I thought the doc was, was well made. Uh, I thought it wasn't, uh, for me as a golf, you know, quote, insider, as someone who's covered the game for two decades, there wasn't a lot new. Right. Uh, I almost felt like that documentary wasn't for me. That documentary was for sure. the casual golf fan, for the – and for the fan of HBO who's looking for something to watch along with Game of Thrones and, and, and whatever else, you know, or Netflix, whatever else comes across, uh, Queen's Gambit and The Crown and, and uh, you know, Ozark, I, I put it in, in the realm of something really well made um, in terms of the, the footage that they were able to get and some of the stories they were able to tell, even if I had heard most of them. I had a good buddy texted me the other day and said, Hey, have you watched tiger doc? And I said, is it, and I said, yes. He said, is it worth it? And I said, you know what? He's not a huge golf fan, but he's interested in human nature. He's interested in tiger from a, from a general sports fan perspective. And I think for that viewer, it's going to be pretty riveting for me. It was a bit of a rehash though. I thought it was pretty um, well made in terms of stylistically and kind of the drama that built to the end of the first part into the, the big fall of, of the second part in, in Tiger's Rise. I thought the end was a little bit rushed. They didn't really get into Agree. all the details of his climb back to to relevancy and good health. But I thought for uh, for what they had to work with, and that means no Tiger, that means no Tita, the mom, 
you know, thankfully they had Steve Williams and some ex, you know, the, the, the high school girlfriend and, uh, you know, Pete McDaniel, who, who's known the family for a long time to lend some perspective. But uh, there were some gaps there for sure. But I thought as far as a, uh, an HBO two-part documentary, I thought it was pretty well done. Okay, that's a fair take. I like that take. I think you're right, too. Um, just watching it with my wife, who is a lot more like the person you described, she enjoyed it way more than I did. Um, there you I, go. Obviously, she hadn't she hadn't read the book, so she didn't know any of the stuff that was in the book, right. you know, and um, a lot of that stuff was new to her. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really that's a really fair point. That's a really fair point. Um and, and and I think you made a great point too about it being rushed at the end. They spent so much time on the on the rise, first rise and the fall and then the the rise back without like you said rushed, but you know, I guess I mean I don't know why it couldn't have been a three-parter if they want, you know, if they needed more time. I don't yeah. know or why that that one couldn't have just been 20 minutes later. I mean to me it's a stylistic choice. Uh, beyond a time, I don't think they were in a time crunch, right? And something like that. I mean, maybe, but it seems like you could do for as long as there's little as you wanted. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe they felt rushed by time. Let's let me ask you this quickly. So we just seen a ten part documentary on uh, Michael Jordan, right? We kind of kind of all watched that during quarantine or whatever, and certainly over the last. 10 years or so there's been a sort of a rise of the sports documentary. Thanks to the 30 for 30 series, I would say, you know, on ESPN that that just kind of sparked this certainly sparked their interest in doing them. Uh, And there's been a lot more that appeared there. And then, you know, as Simmons left and he started doing some stuff for HBO, HBO was always pretty good at them, you know, so maybe a little, a little bit more competition. And then all these different streaming services have popped up. Uh, so they're all looking for content. So it does seem like there's been a bit of a rise to them. And I think in context, it made me compare this documentary uh, to the world of sports documentaries that now exist. And I think that that was part of why I kind of felt like, well, this doesn't measure up to those. But again, maybe that's unfair because nobody said that they were trying to be, you know, the uh, the Tiger Woods version of the Michael Jordan documentary. They didn't claim that. You know, and I right. and I put that on them for for no reason, really. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, Michael obviously, you know, was was part of the production team that that you know was able to approve the ESPN ten part or the Last Dance, and it was awesome. I, I loved it. I, I they had like the the R version and the in the kind of not the kids version, right? Like the PG version, yep. as it were. Mm-hmm. And, and, and my wife and I, we would kind of toggle back and forth when the boys would run in the room because we wanted them to at least see you sure. know, Michael Jordan at the highest power. So he had such um, a big part of, of what, uh, what you know, that was ending up to be from an editorial standpoint. I thought that was so well done, compelling, the music, the era. It was nostalgic. And you had Michael sitting there looking at an iPad and, and reflecting on that time. And you're right. I mean, the Tiger documentary, by comparison, you know, is 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 but a but a shell of that, in particular because you don't have Tiger, modern day Tiger, speaking about his rise and fall, the back injury, the DUI, the addiction, the the New York Post covers, and the loss of his marriage. I mean, to have Tiger um, speaking to those 
things, and not to mention the 15th major and, and, the, and the 14 that preceded it, to hear his voice on those moments in time would be so compelling. So, so my hope is that the HBO documentary, while I thought it was well made for the HBO consumer and for the general American public, that it doesn't mean that 5, 10, 15 years from now we don't get a 10-part Tiger documentary because I think you could do it. And, I, and if, it, if he somehow participated in it, it would only make it that much better because I can't think of too many stories where you have such a transcendent star who came back from so many different things that, that any one of them could have been the end for him, whether it's the chipping yips, that, that could have been the end for him. The back injury could have been the end for him. The embarrassment of the scandal could have been the end for him. The addiction Drugs, could have yeah. been the end for him. So he, he came back from this storm of, of absolute you know, calamity and embarrassment to become a, a major champ again and win the Masters at the place that launched his incredible legend to begin with. So there was a real full circle a sense from that 15th major that the documentary just didn't really, um, for whatever reason, whether it was time or just not the resources or just didn't want to examine it uh, as much as some of the other things that, that didn't really maybe do that part of the comeback do justice. Couple of things responded to that. One, I think this is interesting. Michael Jordan's involvement in his was to the detriment of it a little bit, right? The fact that he had the editorial control maybe held back the story in, in some degrees. And I enjoyed the Michael Jordan documentary, don't get me wrong. You know, um it's not in like my top ten sports documentaries or anything like that, but I enjoyed it for what it was. Love that Pearl Jam was the last song with present tense at the end. Thought that was brilliant and, and really enjoyed some cool moments in it like the uh like the Larry Bird when they're after the game seven and and Jordan goes up to kind of bust his balls about beating them like what a candid moment that is and you know uh the <laughs> behind the behind the in the in the in the locker room with the 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 guy the security guard with the curly hair and they're you know so there's amazing stuff yeah. in it, but and then it, and and then the Tiger Hoods documentary suffered from him not being involved in it to it you know it was so so I guess there's a little bit of a balance there but and then the other thing is is when you talk about the rise the re-rise I guess and how great that is and how that has taken someone who's not Tiger Woods super fan and sort of made me turn the corner two reasons one everything he's overcome and two seeing him as a father now because I'm a father right yeah. so and 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 when I did in years ago I wasn't uh, and, and now I am a father. And when I see fathers, when I see the moment that he had uh, with his son, Charlie, after winning the Masters, you know, when I see that, it's like, OK. And I want to know more about that, that guy, you know, a little bit more about the father that he is, um, because when you become one, I guess that the, 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 you're more sympathetic or more there's more of a connection to people when you see them in the, those same roles. It's, it's relatable in some way, I guess. And, and, and maybe it like, I, I think that's so well said. Yeah. Like, like we were, we were both, that's so well said. we were both bachelors at the same time, but there's nothing romantic about that. You know, there's nothing like all that interesting about going to the club and trying to find a girl to dance with. But there's something very, very, right. but, but when you become fathers with someone at the same time and you're a father, there's something very romantic and very, and I mean that in like a poetic sense, not like a date sense, 
obviously. Uh, but there's just something about that that I guess I wanted more of, and I was thinking of it as you were saying what you did there for sure. So I don't know if you th- any thoughts about that. Yeah, I think there is something about the 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 fact that Tiger is a you know was humanized in a lot of ways as a father, as a a punchline, as a human being that had frailties and was fallible, and I think. He was such an assassin at the height of his power and to lose it all, but to also know that he's a parent, a father who, whose kids are telling him, well, you're a YouTube golfer. You're, you know, I don't know about this 14 majors that you won. And all, all I know about golf and you is that it makes your back hurt. And uh, the story about him kind of dropping his daughter off at school and, and kind of, not able to really sit comfortably in, in the carpool line. Um, the story of her finding Tiger in the backyard after a pitching session and on the ground on his back and, you know, him having to yell to her to find him, to, to help him get up and get some help to the house. I mean, those, so you have that side of it, the comeback of, of, of really a, a father who's trying to, for the first time, not just win to like, step on the other guy's neck but to win to show his kids you know what he used to do and i think that's what made him a little more relatable if, if anyone could be you know relatable to a guy who is right a billionaire had, yeah. uh, you know there and yeah. who was on the cover of new york post for 23 days and you know obviously is is a bit of a a strange, you know, it's a strange existence to be a child star, which he was from, from age two or three on. Um, but I, I think if anything, it gave all of us a feeling that, you know what, he's also a parent. He's also a dad who's lost his own father and, and, and anyone who watched him in 97 hug his dad and then watched him in, you know, 2019 hug his kids. Right. You, you had to have been moved, moved by that. All right, so there's like three or four parts of this I want to really talk about with you. And the first one is the one where I want you to do most of the talking, okay? And I want to talk about the first part of the documentary and how much time they spent on race. And it seemed like they cast, in a way, uh, Brian Gumble specifically to be like the voice of race of the talking heads. Like, I'm not really sure. Did Brian Gumble comment about anything else in the documentary? I don't, I don't think he did. Maybe he, he did, but it was almost every time he was on, it was for that. You know, which is, to me, a waste of Brian Gumbel. He, he's got more to offer to that documentary than what, I don't know. I don't want to, look, it, I, I want to, I want, you know how hard this is, Damon. You know, for someone like me, I don't want to be insensitive. I don't want to say the wrong thing. But I want to say that watching the documentary at sometimes it felt like they were saying one thing and then they would show the screen and I didn't see that. Like they would say, okay, so Tiger Woods is at the Masters and there was, there was people that were saying nasty things to him and he wanted to hear that. And, and I believe that and that's horrible. But then they show the screen and there's 50,000 people chasing after him, screaming Tiger, 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 Tiger. You know what I mean? So I'm just thinking, like, all right, you know, how do you ba- how do you balance those two things? You know what I mean? Are we giving too much to the four people who may may or may not have called this hotel room? And how how is it that 
the people with bad to say are only the ones who seem to have the cell, the number to the hotel room. But are we, I mean, where is the balance there? Do you know what I'm trying to say? When I'm watching the documentary, yeah. you know, they're saying all these people are against Tiger because of his race. I've never met a person like that in my personal life. And everything I see on TV is all of these companies who's, who's basically given Tiger the reign as the number one spokesperson, you know, a guy who, who, who has achieved so much. And, and, and then also I hear him sort of also pushing back on it and then people kind of getting then being mad at him for that you know like there's that point where I guess Tiger said something on Oprah where he kind of tried to downplay that part of his life and people got mad at him for that and it's all a little bit confusing to me so you're the more you're, you're better to speak on this I've already said too much what do you think about the first 40 minutes or so where they spend so much time on that and give me a few minutes on Tiger and race and how complicated it is especially given the role he seemed to not want to play in it, and also just the, I guess, multi-dimension to his race as well, right? I mean, I don't know. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that the race is a part of this story, um, just under the surface and sometimes in our face. I think that part of the compelling nature of Tiger from the very beginning is that he is of of mixed race, uh, you know, African-American, uh, that he looks different than the prototypical golfer was part of the reason of his magic, was part of the reason of his allure. Agreed. There was this guy that looked nothing, nothing like Davis Love and Couples and Lanny Watkins and Tom Watson. And Mickelson. Who was beating them. And Mickelson and right. beating them by 12 shots and sure. 15 shots and 8 shots. So, okay, I'm so with I, you. I think it was, yeah, it was, it was, part of Nike's push also, and it comes on the, in the heels of Michael Jordan, but it's happening in a sport that's largely white. So I think there are a lot of different things that play. I think more than one thing can be true. I think race could be a part of the story, but I also think Tiger is uncomfortable talking about it and never wanted to be a spokesperson for it. That could also be true. It could also be true that, that, uh, you know, the way Billy Payne and Augusta reacted to, Tiger scandal uh, was maybe more harsh than it would have been for a, a different star, um, you know, considering Augusta's own history with race. So sure. that could also fair, yep. be true. And it could also be true that, but it could also be true that I, I think the majority of people who love Tiger love Tiger and, and don't think about his race overtly. They just love the, the, the height of his power, the greatness of his golf, how he made them feel on Sunday. That could also be true as well with anything that has to do with race, especially it's complex, multi-layered, very difficult to, to distill into a sound bite or even a podcast. I, I, mean, I think there's so much to it. Uh, and I think that what we see in Tiger is almost what we want to see. You know, some people don't see race, um, but some people might see it and not even realize like it might be almost subliminal and almost subconscious and not even like consciously thinking about it. There, there's so many levels uh, to that, but I, I think you have a point that uh, the first part of the doc did lean on it, but I think it's a part of the story just because it's so different. It's so uh, un, unusual in the game of golf that you'd have someone look like tiger 
You'd have all these different things happen, and including the scandal and the fact that all of the women were were white. I mean, that that's a part that could be a chapter in a book. And sure. If you want to get into the sociology and psychology of that and how all of a sudden, like, you know, how did the black community want to react to that, that all the, the women were blonde or brunette, you know, and, and his wife. there were no sisters. Right. And his wife. And his right? wife yep. as well. So I, I think it's a sticky wick. And I, I think that when you talk about race and sports, uh, it is a complex uh, topic that, you know, the, the, the documentary probably couldn't give enough justice to, and we talk about what's missing and what's not a part of it. Well, that, that, you know, race giving it like a true thorough deep, you know, look at with the sociologist's eye uh, that was missing as well. Let me say this, Damon, just, I want to give you a little bit of background. I, I grew up in, in the city. I grew up in the city of Buffalo. Sorry, lost you there for a second. I got you. I grew up in the city of Buffalo, and I went to Buffalo Public Schools. I went to very diverse. Okay. I went to very diverse schools. Went to Buffalo Public High School. I'm a Buffalo Public School kid through and through. I never went to a school that wasn't fifty-fifty, at least you know, all my way through. And I grew up in the era where we learned in school when we talked about race, we talked about Martin Luther King, right? That was the thing. And we learned about the content of the character, of the person, not the skin. And in our school, as the student body, that's how we lived. You know, we walked around. I went to the Buffalo Academy for Visual and Performing Arts for high school. And it was not unusual for me to walk down the hallway from class to class and have seven girls, three white, four black, coming towards me singing uh, – you know, the song that they sang in church that Sunday, walking through the halls, because it's an art academy. You know what I mean? And we just, we were that way. And I know that that has created a blind spot for me over the years where my race experience was maybe very different than, say, someone who maybe grew up in Alabama and went to like a 99% white school. You know, I lived in, in this world where it just seemed to work so well, you know, and then I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying, really. I'm just trying to say where I'm coming from, where I came from, you know. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because Tiger's father seemed very, very interested in this part of his life, right? Like, at least the documentary makes it seem like, you know, Tiger's father felt like he was putting out, you know, someone into the world who was going to transcend all of these things and... I don't know. And he and I think he has, right? I don't know. Again, yeah. I, I don't know what I'm saying yeah. and I don't want to say the wrong thing and if you need to put me in my place, do it. You know. Well, I think that the young tiger, if you remember some of the videos and and some of the, the talk, I, I think he identified a lot with his African American father, especially early on when he was playing golf tournaments and you know, when he heard some things and there weren't some places that he felt comfortable and and that he had, you know, more of a public golf upbringing and, and felt different and was looked at differently uh, you know, at, at country clubs or places where there weren't black folks. I mean, golf can't, you know, escape the fact that it was slower to integrate than other sports. You know, you know right. think about Jackie Robinson integrating 
baseball in 1947. Like golf had a, a Caucasian only class till the early 60s. Sure, you know. So, so golf comes from a different set of ideas, and I applaud the current um, stakeholders in the game who I actually believe are, are looking hard at some of these issues and looking at golf's own role in systemic racism in America and trying to make things better. I think golf, um, you know, has a long way to go, but I also think it's made some progress. And I think that race is such a an emotional topic. And even listening to you, I, I think you come from a obviously a background where you really kind of live by that creed of content of their character and not the color of their skin. But that doesn't mean that all of us, consciously or unconsciously, might carry some bias or carry some baggage at a minimum just from the complexities of race in America. And, and I think that, you know, 2020, if it taught us nothing alongside this pandemic, it was that, you know, in this spring and summer of George Floyd, um, that there's still a long way for us to go. But I, I think your generation, which is younger than mine, is going to lead the way. And I think the schools that you went to in Buffalo and the people you grew up with um, that see things uh, in a much more multicultural sense are going to be the ones that, that lead the rest of us who, you know, might be bogged down by race or hampered by race, might give kind of this topic and give this um, complexity uh, a, a little bit of a, of a newer scene. But I do think that Tiger, just because of his multiculturalism, because of his own ambivalence in being a spokesperson to this issue, allows different people to project on him whatever they want, if that makes any sense. Right. And, and like he went as far as to create a word, right? He didn't want to be... Right. It's really weird, right? Like he came up... What was it? Cal- I remember Jim Rome used to call him this all the time. The Kablin Asian. Is that what he said? Right. Exactly, right. which is a Caucasian, you know, Asian, you know, black. Yes, it's like a combination of of, uh, of his multicultural makeup. You know, not his mom who's Thai, and I think he had some Native American in him, and African American, and Chinese. I mean, I think he had a he had a, a you know a whole bunch of different races in his in his in his blood and in his background, and I, and I think that. That was fine. That, that's the, the guy's got to be who he is. He's got to be comfortable in his own skin, and, and, and he has to, you know, I, I can't blame him for not um, wanting to pick a side at it, you know, but I know there are also some of the African-American community who are disappointed because they, they can't pick a side. You know, they're, they're, you know, especially if they're older, they've been told, you know, kind of where to go, what to be, what to think. They, they, they know what it's like to to be in an elevator and to have that uncomfortable glance or to be walking down the street and to have the, the woman kind of clutch her purse. I'm 49 years old and I can speak to those those experiences. And I'm, I'm on television five days a week and I can speak to, to having someone be uncomfortable around me. I'm a six foot three, bald headed black dude. And, you know, you might see me smiling on television uh, 10 hours a week, but a lot of the People in the country have no idea. If, I, if I'm walking down the street, they don't see a, a guy on a golf channel. They, they, they see a six foot three bald headed black dude first. And, and just that image uh, it 
has a whole, a whole bunch of connotations in its own right, whether I get to open my mouth and say, hey, I'm a father of, tri- of triplets, I'm married, I'm a tax-paying, law-abiding citizen on television. Uh, that's, you know, I can't get that out before people have their own preconceived notions about me. Fair. That's very fair. And, you know, I think a mistake I've always made, and I think a lot of people maybe make it, is you equate your experience to everyone's, right? Right. Uh, and whatever you have lived and experienced, you assume that that's what everyone's experienced, good and bad, right? No, I mean, probably both ways, you know? And I think, like, Brian Gumble, right. Brian Gumble maybe is guilty as well of maybe projecting his experience on Tiger. Sure. You know, sure. And, and that's, that's his perspective, and um, and he wasn't alone. Even uh, Thomas Bunk, who's the LA Times, who was the LA Times golf writer when Tiger was out of his power, and you know, he kind of hopped on board with Brian uh, on, on a couple of things in terms of how he thought that the the golf world reacted, how the country reacted, and yeah. And, and I'll be honest, for me, race didn't come to mind. To my to, to me immediately, it wasn't the forefront of my mind during the Tiger scandal, and I thought there were some aspects of it, and I know that, pardon the pun, colors some of the conversation. But for me, it was more like, wow, here's the most famous golfer on the planet, one of the most famous athletes on the planet, who just had his life, um, you know, implode by his own doing. And at that point, I wasn't thinking about race. I was like, man, this is a guy who's, who's lost everything right um i was thinking more of like this is a, a tale as old as time you know a, a wealthy you know rich powerful man who uh you got caught you know that, that, that right. kind of was the first thing and, and the actual race uh initially for me was 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 secondary or even beyond that all right let's let's do one or two more and then i'll let you go i know the boys are gonna be done with tennis soon um let's talk about his dad now that's something we've talked about a lot you and I on here about Tiger's dad and the the role he had on his career and his life. And what I liked about the documentary, I'll give him this, is they were really good at not forgetting about Tita, right? The, the, they didn't boil it all down to his dad. I was really interested in some of the, the stuff that they did with the role that um, Tiger's mom has had in his life. Uh, but, you know, I wish they would have done a little bit of a better job in sort of discussing uh, Tiger when his dad had passed away. Because I think it would, you know, I think it's really changed. Um, it really changed him. Maybe I think went a long way to describe or explain some of the things he went through in the five years or so after he passed away. And, you know... I don't know. What did you think about the coverage of his parents, his his dad and his mom? Yeah, I, I wanted more Tita. I wanted more uh, of her backstory and um, how she influenced him beyond, you know, the how, how you know she wanted him to step on their necks and the nicknames for Phil and all that kind of stuff. I, right. Yeah. Fascinated by, by right. her. Uh, she, she's the one that we know the Maybe they all have some of these 
Omerta and, and Nolan and, and you know, her life would, would really speak to any of that kind of stuff. But that was missing. I, I watched the, you know, the, all the the kind of the footage on Earl, early Earl, and, and the friendship with the, with the guy at the, at the golf course and the, and the Winnebago. It, it just kind of it kind of made me sick. It made my stomach hurt. It made me feel bad. It made me perhaps understand a little bit about kind of the complexity that Tiger probably had and how he felt about his own father. Um, I thought it was powerful. I thought it was compelling, but it just kind of, I was just like, man, this is, this is hard. This is tough to watch. And I think that the, the sadness that Tiger had, you know, when he erupted in tears after winning that open in 06, I was actually there for the New York Times. I, I watched that live, literally, when uh, he was crying in Stevie's arms at Hoylake and, and uh, but gosh, all the complexity that must have gone into the the dad who helped make him uh, the, the greatest golfer probably of all of all time, but also who you know was was horrible to his mom. Right. You know that's and that stuff was that's, fascinating. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's just kind of human condition stuff. I mean, that's you know whose who's home upbringing doesn't have doesn't have some skeletons among all of us. And, you know, we're all products of our environment of our parents and all, you know, we're products of divorce in some cases and products of unhappy marriages and products of alcoholism in some cases and products of, of other calamity. And, and I think a lot of us are trying to do the best that we can. And I, and I, I just saw some of those images and, and felt bad. Like, gosh, this is just, this is, this is what, what happens and, and, and it's just kind of sad. I almost felt like a voyeur a little bit and, um, and it was tough to watch in, in some instances. When uh, my brother was a, you know, was a great hockey player and when he was growing up, he'd go to all these hockey tournaments, you know, and um, I took him one weekend to Pittsburgh and uh, the uh, parents were, the kids went to bed and the parents were, it was just me and my brother. I took my brother. My parents couldn't go that weekend or whatever. So it's me and my brother and, my brother, you know, the kids had a curfew, and then all the parents were going to go down to the um, to the lounge or whatever in the hotel after. So I went down there, you know, and I'm just sitting around, and one of the dads ended up going to the room of another one of the moms, and they were both oh, married. Wow. Right? So this happened, and everyone in the team knew that it happened, you know, except for the kids, really. They're all in bed. And I just remember the next morning standing in the lobby and all the kids are running around with their hockey bags and how silent it was and how weird it was. And I was thinking about that with Tiger. Like, you know, he's out on the road with his dad. His mom's at home. You know, he's chasing his dream. And his dad is doing these things to his mom. And where does that put him in the middle and all that? And it's just like, wow, you know, wow, you know. It's yeah. It's one more layer to one of the most fascinating human beings to, to you know to pass across our our televisions, and, and, I, and I think that that the that's why the, the 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 tiger fan is not going to like this documentary. And, and I was following social media and some of the fallout. And, um, I think the the modern day viewer who wants some entertainment uh, and I don't think it's overly salacious I didn't think that but it's, it's engrossing and compelling and, and it's got some tough scenes I, I think that's 
that's what documentary is supposed to do. It's supposed to, to make you think and it's supposed to entertain and it's supposed to inform. And I think it does that. But, um, but yeah, I could see why the Tiger fan, the devotee, the, the one that never left, the one that always believed that a 15th major was possible, the one that wants to think about the, the good stuff and the comeback and the, the, the majors and, and all the, the good memories, we'll, we'll find some of those things tough. But it also explains the man, explains why he's reticent, explains why he'd have a yacht called Privacy. It explains why he wouldn't want people trying. I, I, I once uh, sent a, uh, a note. I wanted to write a book on, on Tiger uh, in, in fatherhood. This was would have been right before 09. It was, about, it was I want to say, his daughter was was, was very young, and, and I wanted to write a book on Tiger in, in parenthood, Tiger in fatherhood. And, and uh, I, I got a note back from his camp that, uh, that, that Tiger was not interested that you know that wasn't something he'd want to get into, but I, I was was wanting to to get stories from Tiger on what he remembered from his dad and, and what uh, lessons he wanted to teach his children. And this is pre-scandal; I had no idea what his own lifestyle was like. And you'd heard rumors about Earl and all that, but I, I just didn't know the complexity of that. And looking back, I, I'm not surprised that that Tiger uh, would pass his camp would pass on that. But maybe maybe one day. Um, he will tell that story and, and, and tell his own story and, and share it, whether it's in a Michael Jordan-style documentary or in his own autobiography with a writer. Um, I'm not sure if he want to dig deep and kind of uncover some of those wounds, but um, if he ever did, I think it would be compelling, uh, a compelling read or watch. Yeah, I wonder if his answer would be the same today that it was in you know 08, 09 or whatever. I just wonder. Um, yeah, yeah. Two more real quick. Let me ask you about Stevie because this is something I had a real problem with when I read the book with Tiger. It seems like this guy just does not know how to end a relationship, right? You know, right right from the beginning with the – I don't know if it was the girlfriend they showed on TV or the one after her where she was like at a tournament and they just got all of her stuff packed. They packed up all her stuff in the room and like checked her out and like basically told her to get the hell out and then he's – Never talked to her again. I don't know if you remember that story from the book. And then with Stevie Williams as well, it's like he has this long relationship. And Howard Stern is like this too. Like, I don't know if it's, you know, where if you leave that show and you leave his world, you you are out. You know what I mean? You just, it's almost like you didn't exist. You know, Jackie Martling, Artie Lang. You know, all these guys, I don't know what you know about the Tiger, or this Howard Stern show, but it's something I enjoy. But for, you know, people who are around him for years, it's like, what do you think that's about? Like, why do you think it's like he can't even give that guy a explanation? You know, like, why? Like, why is it? Why is he like that? What do you, what do you think about that? That whole part of his yeah, story? I, I, I think that's how you win 15 majors and then 82 PGA Tour events and you can come back from things that would have, is that what like it is? Other people, yeah, yeah. Other people would have been reckless and sitting at home and they would never show their face again. I think the Tiger, um, you know, in a lot of ways is still that, that stone cold guy who um, has maybe shown us a little bit more humility of late, who, who may have shown us a little more humanity of late. And I do think that fatherhood has done him some good, but I still think it probably pales behind 
most human beings with some basic empathy and sympathy and some of those feelings that, that, that most of us have. And I think that kind of goes back to his lack of ability to feel or ability to to empathize. And I think when you look at how some of his relationships have ended, um, it probably speaks to that. It speaks to that how someone who, you know, was, you know, was, you know, was the best man at his wedding. And I mean, they were, they were brothers in how it could just end with the snap of a finger. Um, I think it just speaks to the whole makeup of the man, even as he's made some, some changes and shown some, uh, some softening there. I think it's relative. I think it's still very small relative to the to the Iceman who um, has been built to kind of tear through golf courses and tear through relationships um, and, and just keep moving forward. I guess maybe if you're raised in competition, you know, if your whole childhood, your whole upbringing is revolves around winning the tournament. You know, there's a there's a certain cutthroat nature to that, and maybe he just doesn't know how to separate his real life from that competition. You know, and, and yeah, that would explain as... that would explain Howard too, because Howard was so cutthroat mm. to be number one. You know, yeah, and I don't know, maybe that there's something to that. Sorry, I cut you off. It doesn't strike me as somebody say I'm sorry. A lot, or my mistake. I think he did, you know, from the blue curtain um, after the scandal. But I, I think that water finds its level, and, and I think that uh, you don't get the the kind of stone cold Sunday blood red shirt and the fifteen shot win at the U.S. Open, the twelve shot win at the Masters, and the eight shot win at the Open right. without without the um, the lack of social graces and sure. some of the norms that, that that we would like like him to have, like him to have the total package, and, and maybe he just doesn't have the ability to do so with, with, with the way he was raised. All right, last thing. What about Rachel? So it seems like she's still very loyal to Tiger. I mean, I guess she did sit down and do the interview, so you could say that contradicts any loyalty. But man, she didn't say much, and it sure felt like. She has not gotten closure. You know, it seems like she is still waiting for a last chapter with him in some way. I don't know. Like, I just got this impression from her that she's still kind of stunned by everything. You know, that everything was going one way and it all changed so instantly that she hasn't gotten around to being totally accepting of the change just yet. That was my impression of her. What did you think of her and how she came up? Yeah. I was struck by how bad her life had gotten. I didn't realize that that was, um, you know, I, we were also focused on Tiger. And right, the hounding. He was facing. Yeah, I didn't realize that she had been pounded and hounded as well um, in the wake of, uh, of the 09 um, Thanksgiving, you know, scandal at the fire hydrant. I, I was surprised at that. I... You know, I, I just—I'm glad she spoke. I'm glad she was a part of the doc because I think she added something to it. But I, I agree with you. I, I'm glad it didn't get to the point where it was so salacious and so 
messy and, and it's so uncomfortable. But, but I, agree, I think you're right. There's something there that, that she, uh, she really threw him under the bus as much as she kind of threw the situation under the bus and, and was just not happy with how the the media continued to hound her and to and to make her life a, a living hell. I, I didn't expect that. I didn't know. Is there anything else you want to say about the documentary? Uh, I'm glad it's a part of uh, of something that viewers can watch. Um, it's not uh, necessarily a must-watch, but I thought that it was really, really well done um, in terms of HBO kind of adding to its canon of, of, of things that are watchable. Um, it's um, a lot lifted from the book, I thought, The Tiger book that you mentioned by Benedict and Catan. Um, I think it absolutely opens up the door for something greater down the road. Uh, another documentary, uh, a deeper dive, maybe more of a Ken Burns, you know, Michael Jordan-length documentary that maybe takes us even more inside the, the complex character that, that this Tiger was. Agree. So, we always, I always kind of end this with this question, and I guess Last time was the first time you changed. So he says it over and over, 19 in the documentary, right? Over and over. There's that one in interview for SportsCenter, I think, where they show, and she's like, well, what about this? And he's like, 19. What about 19, 19, 19? Um, this is it? Or is he one more? Is, can he pass? Like, where do you stand on the chase? Is the chase over? And is it more just wondering if he can have one more day maybe at Augusta? You know, maybe still his uh, his jacket in '86. Maybe it wasn't necessarily '19. Maybe that's still a few years down. A true like one last major type thing, or do you think he can win four more or whatever? Like, where do you stand on that today? I don't think Tiger can win four more. Um, he had back surgery. It just seems like it's far fetched to think that he could win four more majors. I've been all over the map on this. I don't think the chase is on. Like, I think he'll still compete, contend, and maybe win one or at best two more. But at his advancing age, uh, 45, the fifth back surgery scared me. It just, uh, even if it was just to clean out some things, and, you know, it's still undergoing the knife. And I just feel like as, as much as I'd love to see him add some more, 15 feels more and more as every day, as every week and month goes by, that that might have just been the incredible capper, that, that Jack's win in 86 and Tiger's win in 2019 are almost twins. Right. You know, two guys who were counted out, who uh, we all thought were probably done winning majors, uh, were able to give us one more great flourish at the golf course that did them best. Well, I still wonder, though, if, like, of all the tournaments, that's the one I wouldn't count him out on. He's just so great at that course. You know what I mean? And if everything just happens the same way where it just sets up and he's in a big group and there's 10 holes left and nobody had pulled ahead and he's within striking distance and I just wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't count him out in that way. So, like, I could believe one more, you know, but I, I think I agree with you otherwise. All right, the great Damon Hack. He is on Twitter at DamonHackGC. And also, if you enjoy wine, 
You can follow him at Goats and Grapes, um, which I think is a reference to being great, not being a goat, right? Like by goats, you mean <laughs> very, very good wine, right? Not like actual goats, but not absolutely right. goats is the greatest of all time. <laughs> right, 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 right. Goats and Grapes. You can follow him for uh, for wine stuff. Damon, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I know I wanted to do it with you for a while. Uh, so thanks for taking all the time to do this with me. Thank you, Steve. It was a fascinating conversation. I look forward to the next one. Richard Deitch. Don't forget that this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters can be found on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. You can find the podcast, of course, on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple. Leave a five-star review if you'd like. My friend Peter says it creates social awareness or social interaction, something like that. Social proof. He's got a fancy word for it. Speaking of Peter, greetings from Allentown, uh, the number one wrestling podcast with only one person talking. It's my good friend Peter Winston. Twitter is at GF Allentown Pod. He has a new episode that just went up today as I'm recording this, and it's a 1990 uh, WWF Superstars uh, 526.90. 300 and uh, what? How many days are in a year? 365? No, that's not right. 365. Okay, well, what's 364 from the birth of you? One year year minus one day from the birth of Anthony. 526.90, Hogan on the Brother Love Show. Uh, Again, at GF Allentown Pod. Also, his podcast, Greetings from Allentown Live uh, with the great Keithy. Uh, they had a recent episode where they talked about uh, Inside the Steel Cage is the last GF Live, which was the last one last time I did an episode. So close together, usually it's something different. But make sure you check out uh, Pete and our podcast, the uh, Adams Division podcast. We have a new episode that we're going to record very soon, and it's about two Hall of Fame wrestlers. I'm going to make a top ten for one. He's going to make a top ten for the other. And we're going to list them off. Uh, also, check out Adrian Dater at a Dater on Twitter. Colorado Hockey Now at its best month ever. Uh, 18 months in. A lot of, if you're an Avalanche fan, I mean, I would think you'd want to be on there. Wagon. Yeah, and you want to know what's going on with McKinnon, right? Because he's week to week. So uh, I think if anyone's going to. Is that get, what it is? Yeah, he's week to week with a lower body or something like that. Uh, so follow Cal Adrian. McCarr, yep. Insane. Yep, yep, yep. Follow Adrian for information on that at Dater on Twitter. Also, don't forget about the 24-inch podcast. It's me and crazy Hollywood Dave Rollins. It's at the number two, the number four-inch podcast, at 24-inch podcast on Twitter. The email is the same thing, at 24-inch podcast at gmail.com. The next episode, we're going to cover 1985, uh, the war to settle the score. Um, And we're going to talk a lot about Cyndi Lauper. Uh, we're going to read the news from February of 
85 should be a good show. All right, one last thing. Uh, but before we get to me today, we'll get to Anthony. Go ahead. All right, well, my one last thing is, and then sort of a, an answer to Steve-O or just a reaction to his yesterday is just being a little brother. I mean, they're very thankful. Um, and if you hear pucks in the background, that, that's on me. I'm in the hockey rink. But, um, you know, I think from, from any, any time I can really remember, I was, you know, always surrounded by older people. And that was because of my older brother, Steve, my older brother, Greg. And I think that set me up for everything that happened in my life was, it was the, the comfortability of being around older people and, and learning since. And especially music, you know, I think music is sort of something that always will bind Steve and, and our brothers together. And I think that some of the events that we've been together has always been Pearl Jam or music. And, and music has sort of been the way I've always connected with people, whether it be teammates in college, um, friends, you know, and Steve, you know, talked about when he was at the hockey house and we were playing Better Men Live. And like that wasn't because Steve was there. You know, I think I turned a lot of guys into Pro Jam fans, and that's because Steve turned me into Pro Jam fans. Um, and now, you know, in my role now of, of sort of mentoring younger guys, and, you know, I, I'm leading from the example that was set by my brother. And, um, you know, I think being a little brother is one of the coolest things that could ever happen to me. Um, you know, I had, I had, you know, fans that were supporting me the whole way, and those fans are my brothers, right? And I'll never forget. You know, we had some, you know, some trouble, not trouble, but some hardships, you know, in our family growing up. And I'll never forget when my brother Steve took me to Shadyside Academy in my senior year and I didn't have a hockey stick <laughs> and you need one of those to play. And, you know, he spent $200 on a hockey stick. And, and that's something that, you know, just shows the kind of support that I had. And, and here I am today, you know, really living a dream of mine and then still a part of the game of hockey and, you know, I, I can't imagine I would have made it very far without my brothers. You know, my parents are obviously huge supporters um, the whole way, but I think my brothers served as a great intermediary of, of parents and friends and, and mentors and, and confidants. And there's a lot of phone calls I can remember where, you know, I'm struggling or things weren't going right. And, and, and Steve, you know, would be the guy on the other side of that phone call. And, I'll never forget. This is another memory that's always in my head. My sophomore year in college, I remember I was walking back from the dining hall and I was shit. I wasn't really playing that great or I didn't think I was playing that great. And, you know, a phone call to Steve just sort of squares me up. And, you know, months later we won a national championship and, and that's not by accident, right? Like it, it's, it's, it's amazing having people around you that, that know you from day one. And I think that's, the advantage of a little brother, right? If you're an older brother, you know, I don't know a lot about Steve before I was but Steve knows me from day one. And, um, you know, his leadership and, and joining him in college and listening to music, watching movies, it's just, it, 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 it sort of shaped my, my personality. And I'm very thankful for that and the ability to hang around older people. Um, I've always been comfortable with that. And Steve always brought me around his friends and, um, you know, it's just an amazing, amazing advantage that I had with, with two older brothers that, you know, were, were helping me pull the rope. And, um, and here I am today, like I said, I'm, I'm staring at a hockey rink that I get to skate out every day. And, um, I, I don't think I would have gotten as far with, without my brothers and, and, um, you know, and I'm not the best at, uh, at emotional stuff or sharing a lot. And maybe that's something I need to change. And, 
you know, maybe I need to, to, you know, say it more, but it's, it's the honest truth where, you know, I'm very thankful for the support Steve gave me and my brother Greg and, and, and taking me along the way and showing me how to, you know, be a good person, right? That's the most important first, but you know, I see them as, as parents and get to be an uncle, which is the easiest job in the world. And um, to see what, to see what little Paul has turned into. I mean, Paul knows more about wrestling than, a 30 year old probably knows about wrestling. And I think that's just like, just shows that, you know, it's a very unique sort of bond that Steve has with his, with his daughter and, and Paula is going to grow up to be an absolute beauty who, who's going to, you know, shock people when she wants to talk about 1980s wrestling instead of whatever, six so. but I guess just to wrap it up, you know, I, I'm just very thankful to be a little brother. And now here I am today, sort of, the older brother for a lot of young kids in the hockey world. And, and, you know, I find myself, you know, implementing a lot of things that I dealt with as a little brother and, and, and kind of being the leader for these guys. And, you know, it's, it, it all goes back to, to Steve and Greg and, and those, those early days in Buffalo growing up. And, and we didn't have much, but we had each other and, and, you know, we were all pulling the rope together and it was so cool. And, you know, and another thing like, Having you guys in Pittsburgh winning a national championship, like that must have been so cool. And I'm so glad that, you know, we were able to to do that together. And, you know, and that's, that's forever something that we'll have. You know, I don't say it enough, but I really do love you, brother. And, and I, I don't thank you enough for everything that you've shown me and taught me. And, um, you know, I think about it every day when I walk in the rink, put on some Pearl Jam, drive the Zamboni. And, um, you know, so you're always here with me. And, uh, and I love you for that. Well, the one thing I want to say about all that is that call your sophomore year, you know, just for uh, any other older brothers out there. I was, I don't want to be dramatic, but I was on my deathbed, you know, and. Just because I was on my deathbed, I wasn't going to make it about me. And instead, we just talked about what Anthony was going through. And we said, I'll see you in Pittsburgh. And somehow it actually it actually worked out and we were together in Pittsburgh. Unbelievable. Amen to that, dude. See you in Pittsburgh. All right, one last thing for me today. And yesterday morning I woke up. Not much not much agenda. There wasn't a lot going on. Uh Paula, she goes to school on Monday and Tuesday, and then she's off Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And it was Wednesday. Tammy had a bunch of meetings. Uh so just out of the spur of the moment, I told Paul, get dressed, we're leaving. And we went and we had lunch at Duff's. Had a little bit of a daddy-daughter lunch date. And then we went and got donuts from Paula's Donuts, which is this, like, unbelievable bakery in Buffalo. And, you know, my daughter's name being Paula, she was so excited. <laughs> we were there. She's like, look, there's my name. Look, there's my name. There's my name again. I see my name. Look, Dad, there's my name over there. Look, there's my name. And then she was telling all the workers, my name is Paula. My name is Paula. Um, and everyone just loved her there. And then we went to the 80s toy store. And we spent some time in there. And I bought her, you know, a uh, Ghostbusters um, car that she wanted. And we got a couple of wrestlers. And we got, you know, whatever. Got some stuff. And then we came home. It was like three hours together. And it was just like, I don't know, something I just think I should do more even. You know, every once, once in a while, once a month or whatever, I just want to. Let's wake up and go do something with her. And it's been tough, obviously, through COVID, you know, like 
you can't do this or you can't do that. But there's always something um, that I could figure out. And I was just thinking like, wow, it was such a great day. And I woke up with nothing. I woke up with nothing. And then, you know, we just went and we just did did our thing together. We just did a thing, you know, and that's that's another reason why I love having one and knowing I'm only going to have one. You know, I didn't have to think about, you know, balancing it out or whatever. It's just like, okay, I can just take her out of here, you know, take her to lunch, buy her shit at the 80s toy store, you know, buy her donuts, and we can just do our thing. And, you know, man, like, it's, you know, sometimes it can be shitty in the winter. You know, I always think about this time of year, I start counting the days. Um, You know, this time of year, it's like Christmas is over. You know, New Year's is over. Holidays is over. Everything that goes in preparing for that. You know, football is over. And like Anthony was saying earlier, like football, never. there's not many happy endings in football. Right. So most of the time, you know, football is over and it wasn't a happy ending. You know, I've been following my team religiously since 1987. And I've only had one happy ending, um, which is the same amount of happy endings I've had after massages, too. So it equals out there. <laughs> But, right. But, you know, it's a, it's a, just like a dull time of the year. The days get long, even though they're short. And it's cold and it's snowing and you start to get sick of the cold and the snow. And there's no more football. You know, right now, even the hockey team is on pause. You know, so there's no hockey. And I don't know. It just gets long. And yesterday was a great day. So, and it, and it just, it came out of nothing. I guess I, I guess I just, it was a lesson to myself. Like you don't have to have something on the calendar that you've been looking forward to for 70 days, a countdown on your phone or whatever to have a great day. So that's it. That's it for the podcast today. Next time, Sal, cousin Sal will join us his first appearance on the show. Also, I'm still reaching out to people. Uh, from the 10 years that haven't been on in a while, try to get some updates from more and more people. And also, I'm going to start airing uh, classic interviews on shows as well. Um, I got, you know, five or six picked out that I definitely want to air. And if there's anything uh, that you want to hear from the past, an interview, uh, I'm definitely going to replay the Duff McKagan interview, definitely going to replay the Artie Lang interview. Uh, there's one with SL Price I want to replay. I'll probably at some point replay the first interview with Jeff Passan. Uh, and then also, you know, there's something big coming. I haven't said what it is. Anthony knows what it is. I haven't said yet uh, because I still every day wake up thinking that they're going to call me and say, oh, no, like, <laughs> what were we thinking? So I'm going to wait, hold off. So if that does happen, I don't look stupid, but. Uh, big stuff coming thanks to Anthony for joining and uh, we'll be back on this feed the next thing will be a 24 inch podcast Uh, check that out if you can we're out